0: An Air France A330 goes down in the Atlantic Ocean on its way to Paris. How did disorientation and equipment cause this plane to crash?
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
2: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And it's been a rough couple of weeks.
1: <laughs> Things are what they are. Yeah. We've been busy as all get out.
2: To to fill you guys in, last week, when we would have been recording this episode, we were camping. And we came home and we were like, yeah, no. And then we were going to do this during the week. And then it was Christy's birthday and my brother got a heart transplant. So we were like, yeah, no. So this is happening way later than usual. It, yeah, yeah. It feels
1: like we <laughs> haven't had a second to think about anything,
2: and it it's been it's been stressful. So please, it, this episode there may be a little bit of some high energy, stressed outness. So you've been warned in advance of every all the stress. So what are we covering today, Nick?
1: So today we're covering Air France Flight 447, and this one. We're doing it a little differently, also, like we've done with a few others, but this one is actually going to be kind of unique. We all know this one, but we also are covering this one a little differently.
2: Also, there were four reports.
1: Yeah. So that's part of it.
2: So that's why more of this rest. It takes forever to read four reports. Just this thing, saying.
1: This one is hefty.
2: So, hunker down. You're getting another long episode this week. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So this incident took place on, well, let me say, it started on May 31st of 2009 and ended on June 1st of 2009, because it was an overnight flight.
2: The same thing with one of my Miranda episodes we recorded a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, this was an a, an Airbus A330-200 with the tail number of foxtrot golf zulu charlie papa The flight was to be from Rio de Janeiro-Galeo Airport to Charles de Gaulle in Paris. So Brazil to Paris. The captain was Marc Dubois. He was fifty-eight years old. He had ten thousand nine hundred and eighty-eight hours total, of which seventeen hundred hours were on the A three thirty. So he's pretty experienced. Now here's where things get interesting. One of the first officers, David David Robert, was thirty-seven. He had six thousand five hundred and forty seven hours total, of which forty four hundred and seventy nine hours were on the A three thirty. So he actually had the most hours on the A three thirty out of everybody on board, even though he was a first officer. He had been taking on a management role at the airline and was on this flight as a crew member in order to maintain his currencies, actually. So his experience wasn't from nothing. He definitely had flown the airplanes a lot. He was very experienced with them. But he had been taking on a management role, and he was only on this flight to maintain his currencies. The second first officer for this flight was Pierre-Cédric Bonin. He was 32 years old. He had 2,936 hours total, of which 807 hours were on the A330. And his wife was actually also on board as a passenger.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. That's sad.
1: She's a physics teacher.
2: Oh, person after my own heart. (laughs) (laughs) Not physics, but the teacher side. You get it. The physics got me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, physics is physics, but I don't teach physics. So, But I am a teacher. It's sad. That's sad.
1: So that said, there were three flight crew, nine cabin crew, and 216 passengers on this flight. The flight was scheduled to depart at 10 p.m. local time. At 10.10, the flight was cleared for pushback and engine start at Rio. The flight took off at 10.29, so about a half an hour late. The captain was the pilot not flying for this flight, and the first officer, Pierre Cedric, so the least experienced of the two first officers, was the pilot flying for this flight.
2: So to be clear... There were three pilots on this flight.
1: Yes, because there was always a relief pilot, so they could switch out.
2: So, and if I understand correctly, there was a bed where one of the person who was on rest could sleep while the other two were flying the airplane. Correct?
1: Yeah. Yes, and that's true. But also, there were there was um, some open seats that they could take as well.
2: Okay, just wanted to like put that out there because that's a little bit important for later.
1: Yeah. The flight was expecting to fly through some weather along the way, including some turbulence and some possible thunderstorms over the Atlantic. Some thunderstorms. Some thunderstorms. The flight flew for several hours and flew over the Atlantic, still in contact with Brazilian controllers. It was then to fly through a dead zone uh, area of the Atlantic where there was no radio contact with a major control center, and then into Senegal airspace. So that dead zone also includes sometimes difficult radar contact. The flight was cruising at 35,000 feet for their, their route. They entered into that dead zone, leaving Brazilian airspace. And about two hours later, the Senegal controller attempted to contact the flight, since that was about the time that they were expected to be there, and that time had come and passed, and the flight had not been heard from. They contacted Air France, who had not heard from the flight either. They had maintenance personnel look into the ACARS data, or it's basically a transmitted portion of data from the airplane, about maintenance, the airplane tells the literally the maintenance controllers at, at Air France headquarters about if the airplane needs anything while it's flying. the airplane does that automatically. and they saw that the flight had been feeding data but had at one point stopped. Their data only would only transmit every 10 minutes anyway, so you know it wasn't super common that this data wouldn't come through for a little while as time passed without contact from the flight, and as the the time had run out. For fuel on board, it was pretty certain that the plane was lost and it crashed somewhere in that dead zone.
2: Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> to not be seen or heard from again for like three years. Right. So, fun fact, those of you who follow things like Malaysia flight.
1: 370. 370.
2: Yeah. And this flight for a while, uh, they couldn't find it. Because, again, they were in a dead zone, which means there wasn't really a way to know exactly where they went down. Right. Because radar contact is really scarce between in that part of the ocean. So right. they know they crashed along the way. They just didn't know where. And if you know anything about the black boxes, the beacons that are in the black boxes that help you find them, it goes dead after 30 days. So if you don't reach the point where you can find them within 30 days, you're shot out of luck. If you don't find the beacons, like the signal from the beacons within 30 days, which is part of the reason why they couldn't find Malaysia 370, they didn't find this flight either because they didn't find the beacons within those 30 days. And so they couldn't find the wreckage for a long time. But fun fact, because we're doing an episode on it, they eventually
0: found it. (laughs) Which we'll get into later. Right. So this investigation started pretty much went. When the plane went missing and was performed by the BEA, who we have talked about before, which is the French investigation authority, given that it was the French flag carrier and it was headed towards Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. In fact, one of the investigators also worked on the Air France Concorde crash that we covered, also at Charles de Gaulle. So he has some cool. experience. Yeah. This first section of information that I'm reading out is based on the first interim report released one month after the disappearance of Flight 447 and the second interim report released in December of 2009, six months after the disappearance. Quite obviously, the first goal was to find the plane, as they couldn't really do much without it. To do this, investigators used the Aircraft Communication Addressing and Reporting System, or ACARS. Um, The messages that were transmitted via satellite every 10 minutes by the aircraft to Air France, each of these gave a variety of information, including the location of the aircraft at transmission. So searches began based on the location of the last transmission, which was transmitted around 210 UTC, and had a location of 2 degrees and 59 minutes north and 30 degrees and 35 minutes west, a.k.a. the middle of the Atlantic.
2: Which we talked about, dead zone. Scarce radar and... Nothing yep. there. No if contact. You,
0: if you pull that up on Google Maps, like I did, it's pretty much solidly between the furthest west point of Africa and Brazil. Like, in the, it's actually like one of the narrowest stretches of the Atlantic, but it's right in the middle of that stretch. So, yep. Ba, ba, ba. Unfortunately, A cars does not transmit heading, just speed, so that left the recovery crews little to go off of. So searches began with a 40 nautical mile radius around the last known location. The French Navy deployed a frigate, a projection and command ship, and a quote-unquote hunter-killer nuclear submarine wow. to search.
1: That's quite the thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I am going to say that this report was translated from French, so maybe it sounds not Way more dramatic. so harsh in French. <laughs> <laughs> or it's, the direct translation is a little harsh
1: to English. It's pretty dramatic. That's what it was called.
0: (laughs) We're going with it. And the BEA also chartered an oceanographic ship with acoustic detection equipment on board to track down that ping that the black boxes released. That's the thing I was talking about. The beacons. Yep. Six days after the crash, though, the French and Brazilian navies both recovered some debris that was ultimately determined to be that of an A330, and they also found bodies but no survivors. This debris was found over two weeks over a huge swath of ocean, hundreds of square miles, but the vast majority of the wreckage was not there and was determined to have sunk to the ocean floor, which was almost three miles deep in some places. This included the two black boxes. As we just discussed, the black boxes do have that transmission ping and the battery that powers that ping does so for up to 30 days. So they had limited time. Now, as for the wreckage recovered... This included the tail fin and some cabin pieces, such as bulkheads, a galley, panels, seats, and overhead baggage compartments, as well as outer pieces like the vertical stabilizer, engine cowlings, and secondary control surfaces. I think they also found the nose cone. That's an interesting thing to find.
1: Well, it does float because it's generally composite.
0: Yes, so most of these pieces were composite and they floated. So Uh, everything else... So just anything
1: sunk. that was made of aluminum went straight to which
0: the is why i thought it was interesting that the galley was found the entire galley uh basically
1: i mean i guess the walls might have been composite i would i'm surprised there were there was enough to hold them up but
0: it's interesting that just that part though would float well and it actually became vital um i didn't read what it was made of the parts of the galley that were found showed compression only in the lower parts of the galley, and this was also found in the lavatory door that was recovered. Interesting. Yep. From this, investigators determined that the aircraft likely struck the water in a level orientation with a high vertical acceleration. So not nose up, not nose down, just Kind of like sea fit, a little bit. Kind of, yeah. Like what you'd expect if
2: you were trying to land, but without the gear.
1: Kind of, yeah.
0: It was also determined that all damage on aircraft components occurred at impact and did not contribute to why the plane went down. Fun thing that I also found that was not included in the Mayday Air Disasters episode was that the ELT distress beacon was recovered and was found in the off position. Meaning that, I mean to me, that the crew didn't turn it on. ELT? It's
1: the Emergency Locator Transmitter.
0: Oh, they
2: they were so... I, I don't know if we get into any of the cockpit stuff. We do. Okay, so when we go over that, you'll realize it doesn't surprise me they didn't flip it on. (laughs) Yeah. It does not surprise me in the least. We'll get into it later, but if you know anything about this crash already, they were so preoccupied with other things. (laughs) But
0: at this point, investigators don't know that, so. At the time of these two reports, the autopsy reports of the roughly 30 bodies recovered were not yet available to investigators. It is noted that many life jackets were found all within their packaging, meaning that passengers did not have time to don them on before impact.
2: Which probably means that the crew didn't know they were crashing.
0: The three cabin crew seats that were found of the 11 were not in use as their seat belts were not in use, meaning that those flight attendants were up and out of their seats.
2: So three of the
0: 11 were not in their seats. Well, they only recovered three seats.
1: But there were nine cabin crew members.
0: There were 11 seats.
1: Yes. So two of them wouldn't have been used anyways.
2: So two of them could have potentially been- So at least
1: one flight attendant was up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) As far as we know, they couldn't find the other seats. Right. But there's a little bit of a mystery for you. Yeah. Was it three flight attendants? Was it one flight attendant out of their seat? Who knows?
1: Who knows? Were they in their seat but didn't have it buckled?
0: We will never know. There was also no cabin depressurization as all of the oxygen masks were not released from the overhead compartments that they found. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it wasn't like something breaking apart. No. Now, also included in those ACARS messages were some maintenance system messages. The 210 message that was sent out was a notification of a fault in the pedostatic system. This means that the pilots may not have had reliable airspeed data, which makes some sense given that they were flying into weather actually um I think we've mentioned before in previous episodes, kind of referring to this episode that these pedostatic tubes can freeze and that's a a, a not good thing
1: no, well, but at the time they didn't know that i mean they they knew had th- a
0: suspicion
1: they had a suspicion that it could be. Frozen. They knew with the A330 it could be frozen, actually.
0: Okay, so actually, as it turns out, Air France and other A330 operators were in the midst of replacing these pitot tubes as they had a tendency to freeze and clog.
1: And I'll get into how recent that was in a moment.
0: Okay. Is it
2: right that those pitot tubes had a warming system and that just wasn't on, or was that not implemented yet?
1: So this version of the pitot tube should have automatically basically been able to Ice itself, but there was a known problem with this designed pedo tube. The way it was designed, it wouldn't eliminate the ice. So, yes, so the while they have heat, while, they, while <laughs> they have heat, this one in specific had a problem where it just wouldn't eliminate the ice.
0: Which is why they were in the midst of replacing them, but that's a process. Okay. I thought I
2: remembered something about them not having it on, like the, the, the system that warmed no, them. No, it was automatic. It oh, was okay.
1: automatic on certain airplane.
2: Did not know that.
0: Other warnings that came in from the ACARS message included a disconnect of autopilot not using the push button on the control stick, which is very specific, uh, no wind shear detection, an throttle disconnect, TCAS being an operative, which is the basically anti-collision system. Yes, the yes.
1: traffic collision avoidance system. So,
2: so you don't run into another plane yeah. while you're in the air.
0: Um, The flight director was not available, and a warning of a descent of more than 1,800 feet per minute for more than five seconds. And a bunch of other stuff. But those were the quick and dirties.
1: So there was a lot of really strange, suspicious things going on.
2: The pilots wouldn't have been able to know if everything was right, or if it wasn't right, or if the alerts they were getting were right, or they weren't right. And that plays in later.
0: But none of this really left investigators with a whole lot to go on. So, the search is continued, and Nick will actually now read the findings in this, these two interim reports, as well as the very initial safety recommendations.
1: Yes. So, I'm going to read these mostly from the report, and I'll, I'll summarize a little bit, but basically, the, the crew and the airplane were all certified correctly. The airplane had taken off from Rio with no known maintenance issues. Uh, there was no indication or contact from the crew to either Brazilian controllers or messages, to ops or satellite telephone communications, indicating any sort of problem at any point.
2: So, real quick, Mm -hmm. because it's just popping in my head, would they have been able to contact anybody if they thought that they were in a bad situation? Fun
1: fact, yes. There's two points of contact they still had. There was Air France Ops, which they could have still contacted through digital means. Um, They could have satellite phoned somebody. But there was also... Uh, a very high frequency radio communication they actually had with an air traffic controller Fun so fact. they
2: they could have been if they need if they thought they were in a bad situation, they yes. could have said mayday
1: so yes, so they actually were in communication with an air traffic controller briefly before this, but there wasn't there wasn't much to go on. The last actual radio exchange they had with an air traffic controller was a brazilian a Brazilian air traffic controller, and that was at one thirty five in the morning. But at 2:01, 1:35,
0: and
1: 15 seconds, local time. Okay. Yep, I believe all the times were in real time.
0: Oh, I was reading other things that said UTC, so
1: maybe it's UTC. That would actually be about right too. I think they're almost the same. I think they're only one off. Okay. So, anyways, at 1:35 was the last time. At 1:35 in the morning is the last time they had con- contact with the Brazilian controller. And that was when they also reached the edge of that radar zone. So then they went into the dead zone where there was really neither. But at 201, the crew tried uh, without success for a third time to connect their transponder to the Dakar ATC radar, basically. They found that up to the last automatic position point received at 210 and 34 seconds, the flight had followed the route indicated in the flight plan. Now, mind you... This is just the first findings, because we'll get into this later, but they didn't. They found that the meteorological situation was typical of that encountered in the month of June, in the Intertropical Convergence Zone, which they don't expand on that much, except the next point, where they say there were powerful cumulonimbus clusters on the route for Air France 447. Some of them could have been center for some notable turbulence, So they say, basically, there was thunderstorms in the area, like they were expecting.
2: Yeah, it was normal for that time of year. That's basically what that means.
1: They do say something interesting here, because, and I think they brought this point up specifically, because they even italicized it in here, which I think is interesting. Um, They brought this point up specifically, I think, because they were focusing on that, really the next two points, because they were focusing on that pedo tube issue. They said, uh, an additional meteorological analysis shows the presence of strong condensation towards Air France 447's flight level probably associated with convection phenomena. So in other words they were expecting that there was flowing air that was actually going upward and causing the condensation to go upward and into the the flight levels of that flight. They also say the precise composition of the cloud masses above 30,000 feet is little known, in particular with regard to the supercooled water ice crystal diving. That's what it says especially with regard to the size of the ladder. So, basically they're saying above 30,000 feet, if it is really that convection that's pushing all that condensation upward, there's little known about how that causes ice crystals.
2: And icing and things of such.
1: Yeah. They found that several airplanes that were flying before and after Air France 447 at about the same altitude altered their routes in order to avoid those cloud masses.
2: Probably a good idea.
1: What they didn't really know was if Air France 447 actually did or didn't. They found that twenty-four automatic maintenance messages were received between two ten and two fifteen via the ACAR system. These messages show an inconsistency in the measured speeds as well as the associated consequences. Which we talked about could have been from the pitot. Yep, the, the tubes. Pitot. The PITOT tube. They found that before 210 AM, no maintenance messages had been received from Air France 447, with the exception of two messages relating to the configuration of the toilets. That's weird. Yeah, random. 21 messages present on the CFR are caused or can be caused by animometric problems. Okay, now that I understand that a little better. Which pretend to
0: wind speed. wind
1: speed and direction is what animometric means, now that I know a little more.
0: If you guys want to hear the entire blooper reel of the, like, three minutes you just missed.
1: I just tried really hard to pronounce that word. (laughs) I'm sorry. Be a patron. Now I know how to say animometric. That is new to me. Learn something new every day. And to all of you, you're welcome. It says, none of the messages present on the CFR indicate loss of displays or inertial information attitudes, in other words. So, basically, they didn't have anything to go on that said that they lost any indications. They found that the operators and the manufacturer's procedures mention actions to be undertaken by the crew when they have doubts as to the accuracy of the speed indications. So, if they thought there was something wrong with the pitot tube, then there were things they could do. They found that the flight's ACAR's message was received towards 2.14 and 28 seconds. So it took a little while for that that last message to actually get there, but then that last message was from two fourteen eighteen 18 seconds, or 28 seconds. They found that the flight was not transferred between the Brazilian and the Senegalese control centers, so it never made it. They found that between 8 and 8.30, the first emergency alert messages were sent by the Madrid and Breast Control Centers. They found that the first bodies and airplane parts were found on the 6th of June, so yes, five days later. They found that the elements identified came from all over the airplane. That is what it says.
2: So composites,
0: as mm-hmm. we talked about before.
1: Yep. Because they float. Yep. Composites and plastics and stuff. And the galley. Yes. For
0: whatever reason. Yeah. I'm not gonna try to understand that one. <laughs> it
1: must be made of like plastics and the composites and wood galley. and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> they found that the they found that the oxygen masks had not been released. There had been no in flight depressurization. So the airplane was not having a problem in the cabin anyways, they found that all of the life jackets that were found were still in their containers, meaning that they didn't have time to put them on or get out of the or airplane. Or they
2: didn't think there was a problem.
1: Right. They found that the airplane's flaps were retracted at the time of the impact with water, which is also a sign that they didn't know they were going to hit the water.
0: How do they know that if they didn't find the rest of the wreckage? Remember how I said they found secondary control surfaces? Is that part of the secondary control surfaces? It is, Okay. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute.
1: Fun fact, that's one of the only things they have from MH370, too. They have a piece of flip. That doesn't help. No. No, it doesn't. (laughs) It turns out, no. I I remember when that happened and people were like, but it could be from another airplane. And everybody's like, what other 777 is missing? (laughs) Please tell me. Because... Anybody who's seen it, and any aviator that's seen it goes, yeah, that's from a 777. That is definitely from a 777. It is a large chunk.
2: Also, because pieces of of airplane can float and, and spread, as we will talk about later with yeah. this one, it is impossible to find where it crashed, because,
1: Currents because
2: you can't find the, the origination point of where it crashed.
1: Yeah, they try, but it is tough. currents. Yep. They found that three of the eleven cabin crew seats were found. They were not in use at the time of the impact. They found that an examination of all of the debris confirmed that the airplane struck the surface of the water pitched up with a slight bank and at a high vertical speed. It's really interesting that they actually...
0: Basically flat.
1: Yes. Basically flat. It's really interesting that they actually found that out then because later you'll see how accurate they were. Defend that analysis of 13 previous events showed that 1. They occurred in air masses that were highly unstable in the seat of deep convection phenomena. 2. Autopilot disengaged in all of the cases. 3. The maximum continuous invalid recorded speed duration was 3 minutes and 20 seconds. 4. The uncommanded altitude variations remained within a range of more or less 1,000 feet. And 5. The airplane always remained within its flight envelope. So, they knew that the autopilot would have disengaged. They found that that had happened before, and they knew that the autopilot had disengaged in this case, because ACARS told them. So, they thought that it was interesting. They thought that that definitely correlated with some of the the pedo probe stuff.
2: Yes, because, as we talked about before, if the pedo tubes did ice, which, by the way, they did, um, which we will talk about in a second, how they found that out, but because you're not getting proper readings in the pitot tubes, the autopilot automatically shuts off because it's like, hey, I don't know what to go on, so I'm going to shut off and you get to pilot what the plane. What are you doing, buddy? And we'll talk about the little bit of stupid that happened because, believe me, a little bit of stupid happened.
1: Yeah, we'll get to that.
2: And I'm going to probably get real mad and you've been warned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so backtracking just a little bit, I just found a New York Times article from 2011 <laughs> Where officials from the BEA said that they didn't release several high-resolution pictures of the wreckage because Mm -hmm. bodies were visible.
1: Yeah, still in the seats, I'm sure.
2: To be fair, when you're in an airplane, those of you who have flown, which most of you have, I would assume if you're listening to this podcast, you know that when you're not standing or like in the bathroom or whatever, you're supposed to be in your seat and buckled. And that was still the case at this point in time because it was 2009. 2009. So you'd be in your seat buckled. So when it crashed, it makes sense that there would be bodies because they probably would be buckled in their seats. Yes. Which means they wouldn't, those who did float to the top either didn't have their seatbelt on or the impact loosened them from their seat or their seat broke or whatever.
1: They found that the probes that equi- that were equipped on this airplane met requirements that were stricter than the certification standards, so the pitot tubes that were on there were actually certified, and even to standards stricter than that, that were regulated. They found that on March 30th of 2009, analysis of previous events had not led the EASA to make mandatory a change of the probes on the Airbus A330, A340 fleets. So... By the end of March in 2009, there had been no substantial changes made or determined to be, be to be needed by the EASA. So that's it for findings. On As for recommendations, there's not very many of those in this report. They recommended to the EASA and the ICO that they extend as rapidly as possible to 90 days, the regulatory transmission time of the ULB, or the, the beacon that's put out by recorders. So they believe that that They would, instead of being 30 days, it would have been much more useful if it had been 90 days. Which is... Knowing now with MH370, that still didn't matter.
2: No, because they still haven't found it, obviously. But it makes sense why they'd want a longer time.
1: Yeah, they still would, it would still, they believe it might have helped them find it faster.
2: Basically, it should be as long as humanly possible. Yes. And the reason why, so they kind of knew where this flight crashed-ish. So it would be helpful if they had the 90 days because then they're like, it's around this area somewhere. We just don't know where. With MH370, they have no idea where it crashed. So it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Right. Which is why we say it doesn't matter because it wouldn't have mattered because you don't know where it went down. So because of the ACARS information, they knew it has to be around here somewhere because there wasn't another transmission after the 10 minutes normally that they had so they knew kind of where it was but not exactly so the 90 days would have helped because then it would have helped them find it for sure because then they could find the beacon yeah but because it wasn't and they obviously didn't find it within the 90 days yep or the 30 days excuse me it it would have helped to have more time
1: anyways moving on They recommended making it mandatory as rapidly as possible for airplanes performing public transport flights over maritime areas to be equipped with an additional beacon capable of transmitting on a frequency, for example, between eight and a half kilohertz or nine and a half kilohertz. And for a duration adapted to the pre-localization of wreckage. So I don't wholly understand what they mean by that last part. That's that might be more of a translation thing, but the first part is just saying that they wish there was a second beacon that was separate, somewhere on the airplane. Kind of like an ELT.
0: For only for planes flying over the ocean.
1: Yeah. That's more specifically suited for being in water for very long periods of time. That would probably
0: have been helpful.
1: Yes. And they recommended studying the possibility of making it mandatory for airplanes performing public transport flights to regularly transmit basic flight parameters. For example, position, altitude, speed, and heading. Things that they didn't have through the ACARS. They had speed, but not exactly. But basically, they recommended... Establishing a proposal to test conditions for uh, implementing deployable recorders for airplanes performing public transport flights.
0: I So once upon a time, we recorded an episode, and then it got lost twice. Yeah. And I did a whole history of black boxes, and we actually discussed that a little bit. Yeah, Um, where they wanted
1: to have ejectable recorders.
0: Or like having the information get
2: sent...
1: I think that would be... Via int- uh, waves. Yeah, where, where I think that would be interesting, but I think what would almost be more useful than that is on impact, much in the same way where your car has impact sensors that set off like the airbags and stuff in a split second, same way with airplanes, it would have to be even faster. Not that they can't do that these days because it is amazing what technology can do. But if a high impact is recorded, have these little impact sensors in the airplanes. And if a high impact is recorded that say at the top of the tail or something of that nature, a, a small floating beacon, or satellite beacon anyways, just shoots from the tail immediately, and can transmit information to satellites saying, this airplane's had a high impact in this exact spot. That way they can go to that exact spot and find it.
2: <laughs> it would be helpful. I think in 2009, that probably was a little bit no, I a wouldn't lot? say that
1: was totally out of capability. But to be honest, I mean, I don't wholly know, because there's, there's a lot of things that go with that I'm sure I don't understand. So I think that would be a brilliant idea, but again, that's also maybe not totally feasible.
2: But nowadays, I'm sure. Maybe. Because we have such... You have to imagine, back in 2009, back in our young selves, smartphones were just beginning to be a thing. They
1: were... Was it in Barely. 2009 when the iPhone came out?
2: I think I'm it's 2007. Pre-
1: oh i don't know we just passed 10 years not very long ago i remember reading about it
2: oh christy's looking it up she's doing a boop-de-boops it was 2007 it was 2007 okay i did read something about it the last couple of days so that's how i remembered it
1: okay well yeah so yeah so smartphones were very very new
2: yes and that technology was new and having smaller amounts of technology that do more was new so to be fair it it wasn't it probably was in the reason, but a lot of money back then, and now, I mean, probably it would be totally feasible to do it cost-effectively now. Yep. Would they do it in every airplane? I don't know. Uh, is that in the future? Again, I don't know. I don't work for a company <laughs> that does that, but... Right. I mean, Boeing. Yep. Get on it, my dudes. You guys need or it more than anything right now,
1: apparently. <laughs> or Airbus. Oh, I boy. mean, Boeing, yeah, they should Yeah. <laughs> They recommended, this one was to just to the EASA, they recommended undertaking studies to determine with appropriate precision the composition of cloud masses at high altitudes, so basically saying, study what happens to cloud masses at really high altitudes, as well as they recommended in coordination with the other regulatory authorities, based on the results obtained, modify the certification criteria. So basically saying, see what the, you know, study what clouds do, what cloud masses do at high altitudes, and... Not only that, but then use that to change how airplanes are certified and their criteria needed to be certified. So, like the Pedo tubes, what needs to change for them to fly through cloud masses at high altitudes? The reality is, they just shouldn't. But, if they do, what happens? And what are those clouds like? And how do ice crystals form? And such.
2: And how does that affect flying the airplane?
1: Right. So, that's it for findings and recommendations in the first report.
0: (laughs) After day thirty, the beacon for the flight recorders was presumed dead, so recovery crews had to turn to other means to find the wreckage. Okay. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: Uh, your girl has some bread, so if you hear some chewing noises, I'm sorry. <laughs> I need to eat something. I had too much wine, so <laughs> I have to read later. Uh, and those of you who have heard me read stuff on this before, it's bad when
1: I'm sober. If you can't read, it's okay. <laughs> I have I have the findings and the recommendations summarized, at least, if you need it.
2: Okay, so we'll see later. But if you hear some chewing noises, I'm sorry. I'm trying to make sure that I'm like coherent and not blabbering. <laughs> like an idiot. So, continue on the course of things that happened.
1: Okay. All right. So many, 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 many months had passed. <laughs> many. Many. And they had been doing just about everything to find this airplane. And in doing so, I mean, they had brought out every type of submersible vehicle like we had talked about. And, and they had
0: spent about $28 million at this point.
1: Right. Right. And very they expensive and they hadn't found it I mean it really was a mystery finding this airplane became a, a deep deep mystery they equated it to like looking for this airplane in the Swiss Alps in the size of Switzerland and that's probably not far off because there is pretty nasty terrain at a deep sea level out where it was and in a very large area and when you when you think you know the airplane's pretty large but when you start talking about an area that big, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. You're not going to find it. It's pretty tough anyways. So as they ran out of money, they decided they were going to stop the search. But the families decided that wasn't going to happen. They fought hard, as did the public, to keep that from happening. And they they kind of forced the hand of the government, but also some private agencies, to keep searching for this airplane. And they did. They kept they kept at it. They thought, They thought, you know, after 18 months, they're... Their odds of finding it were honestly slim. They were using equipment now that was used to find the Titanic, but in places that were deeper than the Titanic. And they were really—they were also really worried about the black boxes because the black boxes were not intended to necessarily survive being at such depths for so long. Because there was—they were saying 5,800 pounds per square inch of pressure on the black boxes, That's which, by lot. the way, would crush a human skull.
0: And they're not—they're not rated to survive that, especially for two years.
1: Right. But on March 25th of 2011, while they were doing, while they were working on their final large search of the the area, they were doing a 37-kilometer-wide circle around the last known position. And one weekend, something very large showed up on their their uh, radar.
2: I can just imagine the people who were looking for it and having something that
0: big show up and go,
1: <gasps> "It can't Wait. be. There's no, no.
0: way. There's and no way." There were some photos released. You can Google them and they'll be on our website and all that jazz. Mhm. I think one of the first things they found was an engine.
1: Yes, one of the first things they did find was an engine. So the, yeah, cuz they sent down another submersible with a really high resolution camera on it trying to get photos and images and video of this, and they did. They got these high-resolution images, and they emailed them to Paris directly. On April 3rd of 2011, that wreckage was found. It was 12 kilometers northeast of the last reported position, and it was 4 kilometers deep. So, really deep. And they went on a search for the black boxes, which they did find both of them, and they managed to pull them from the water. Not only that, but the data was salvageable.
2: Yeah, they were able to get
1: them out. Which is unbelievable, if, if I'm honest.
2: Especially in salt water, which salt water, as we've talked about before, is highly corrosive. They yep. were able to get all the data off the black boxes.
1: And they were absolutely able to determine from that moment forward that the pedo tubes rose.
2: And that there's a lot is that we
0: discovered. We go off.
1: Yeah. So there is a lot from here. So now we'll jump into starting our story all over again. Now that we know that they found it. Which most of it, by the way, is still sitting at the bottom of the ocean.
2: Yeah, they didn't get it
1: out. Yep. Oh, they weren't going to pull the airplane from the it ocean. It was at too point. much.
2: Which they uh, really just
1: needed the data recorders to know what happened. It's a very expensive effort. It's very difficult, and if they could get the information they needed off of the black boxes to tell them what they thought they knew, then that's all they really needed. They though need I do believe
0: rest. that they recovered uh, like a hundred and four bodies. Probably, yeah, I but believe that. Bodies also get eaten, and they also float away.
2: That doesn't mean that they were able to identify them either.
0: I think most of them, they actually identified by where they were recovered from in the aircraft. Which
1: is impressive, but it's a lot of work. So we'll start our story over again, sort of. So, obviously, the recorders were recovered 23 months after this crash happened. Nearly two years after this crash. But jumping back to the airplane in flight on its way to its crash site to when the recorders started recording, 40 minutes before the crash. At that point, the captain was still in the cockpit, as well as the initial first officer. The other first officer, David Robert, was resting. At 1.35 a.m., the airplane arrived at the waypoint INTOL, I-N-T-O-L, and the flight subsequently left the receive communication area and flew into the dead zone, where they changed to the high-frequency communications and established radio communications with the Atlantic Oceanic Control Center, but was unable to establish radar contact with them. Shortly after, the first officer, or the pilot flying at that point, pointed out to the captain that there was something on the radar. The crew discussed this, and the captain explained that it was too warm for them to climb from 35,000 feet to 37,000 feet. Basically, they were expecting the temperatures to actually have dropped, but because of how warm it was in that area, the temperatures were staying high, and the ceiling, the The operating ceiling of the airplane, in its current configuration with all the weight and everything, it couldn't go up to 37,000 feet. It was just too tough for that airplane.
2: Wouldn't you need clearance
0: to do that anyway?
1: Yes, but even then, that's not the problem they were having. The problem
0: is it was physically impossible.
1: Literally, it was physically impossible for the airplane to go to 37,000 feet and cruise there.
0: That's why, like, if you're ever flying in general aviation, it's harder to fly in the summer than it is in the winter, based on temperatures alone.
1: Because it's hot. Now, their service ceiling in a really cold area, they could probably fly at 37,000 feet without much issue, but they were being forced to fly at 35,000, and they were looking at this cloud mass directly in front of them. At 1.45 a.m., the airplane entered a turbulent area just before reaching the waypoint SALPU, or S-A-L-P-U. The crew then dimmed the lighting in the cockpit to try to see a little bit better outside, and the first officer noted that they were entering the cloud layer, so he saw just before they hit the clouds they were going in it. Shortly after, at 152, the turbulence stopped. So that means they had managed to get kind of through that nasty little layer of clouds. But it was still really warm, even though they were flying through the clouds. At least warm enough that they couldn't climb. At around 2 a.m., the captain listened to the briefing between the two first officers as, the, as David Robert re-entered the cockpit and was to take the controls from him. And then he left the flight deck to rest. At that point, the airplane was approaching the line again, the line of storms for a second time, and they knew that they were going to fly through another bout of turbulence. At this point, it was just the two first officers.
2: So the one that was super experienced and the one that was not as experienced.
1: Yes. So the pilot flying was always that one who wasn't very experienced. So David Robert took the left seat that had been the captain, but between the two first officers and the cockpit, it was very difficult for them to tell who had what responsibilities now, because it was two first officers. So crew resource management, that's a point where you start noticing it break down. Because what is crew resource management when you have two first officers? It's kind of weird. We've talked about it before, when there's two captains, but now there's set procedures for that. But at the time, in 2009, there was nothing really written about two first officers and a relief captain.
2: Well, here's the issue I have with that now, that that you say that. One of them's flying the airplane. Mm -hmm. That's the less experienced one. Mm Mm-hmm. The other one should be the pilot monitoring. Mm-hmm. So whatever you do in the other seat, my, I guess, kind of, yes. would be what your responsibilities are. So, I mean, at one point, you're either pilot flying or pilot monitoring, right? It doesn't really matter what role you're in. I realize that usually the captain calls the shots. So maybe that was
1: the confusion? Kind of, yes. Basically, the captain has final say on things. And I think that was still kind of the understanding. This was really supposed to be just the crew's part of the flight, so there wasn't supposed to be much to do. And really, they were just supposed to both be kind of pilot monitoring, essentially? Where all they do is monitor the situation.
2: Because, fun fact, the autopilot was supposed to stay engaged for the entire time.
1: Yes. But as we know, it didn't. At 2.06am, the pilot flying called the cabin crew to let them know that they were approaching more storms again, and to expect more turbulence. Little did they know that the That at that point, the pitot tube was slowly icing over from flying through the storms. Like we said, this was a known issue with the A330, but it was thought in the industry that this couldn't possibly be a completely catastrophic issue. At 2.08, the pilot not flying, or pilot monitoring, suggested that they deviate to the left a bit from their route in order to go around these storms. So they switched to heading mode, and they deviated by 12 degrees to the left of their route. So they did leave their route, which investigators didn't know. I also
2: didn't know that.
1: Mm-hmm. They attempted to go around.
2: Which makes sense, because you don't want to fly through a thunderstorm.
1: Right. Ideally not. If they can avoid the turbulence, it would be all better.
2: And they had a radar, like a weather radar on board, yep. right?
1: they had okay. a weather radar.
0: Don't they all?
1: Generally these days, yes, they all do. The crew decided to also reduce the speed slightly and switch the engine de-ice on, noting that they were going to be flying through some precipitation, at 2.10 a.m. in 5 seconds, the autopilot and the autothrottle suddenly disconnected, and the pilot flying quickly stated, I have the controls. But like we said, he didn't disconnect it with the button. The autopilot just disconnected.
2: So, fun fact, when that happens, that usually means that there's something wrong. Yes. But if he had just kept the airplane where it was and just flown, it probably would have been fine. And they probably would have been able to reconnect the autopilot at some point.
1: We'll get into that.
2: But he didn't do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that. The airplane began to roll to the right, and the pilot flying made a nose up and left roll input in order to counteract this. The stall warning then sounded twice briefly in a row.
2: Which, by the way, was from him putting the nose up a little bit, but they didn't know if they could trust this.
1: The recorded parameters showed a sharp fall from 275 knots to 60 knots in the speed displayed on the left PFD, or primary flight display, for the first officer in the left seat.
0: Which is pretty indicative of the pitot tubes having problems. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty indicative I, that
1: the pitot tube wasn't showing correctly, because to just drop from 275 to 60 all of a sudden is
2: I feel like you would sharp. feel that, yeah. Well, <laughs> like, you'd be like, Ugh.
1: Yeah, that's because it didn't actually happen. Exactly. Then a few moments later, the speed displayed on the integrated standby instrument system, or the ISIS, which is a terrible name, also fell. And again, followed by the right PFD. They assume anyways, because actually the right PFD doesn't record data. Interesting. Yep, I bet it does now. At 2.10 and 16 seconds, the pilot not flying, or the pilot monitoring, said, We've lost the speeds. The pilot flying then made rapid roll inputs essentially all the way to the stops left and right, and the airplane pitched up to eleven degrees.
0: They're so much dumb here.
1: Oh, this just gets this, worse and worse
0: again. Stupid.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he's making these unbelievably heavy control inputs when they're not. They can't even really see outside. They Which don't see must have anything. Felt
0: great in the cabin. So
1: this is definitely disorientation at its finest already. They know something's up, and he's overcontrolling the airplane because he's completely disoriented.
2: And we've talked about overflying the airplane before. Yep. If he had just kept the controls where they were and just flown it. Yep. Again, they didn't really know what was going on, to be now,
1: fair. Now, and part of this is they always tell you to trust your instruments, right? Well, the their instruments, instruments couldn't won't, be trusted all yeah, of a sudden. they
2: weren't showing great.
1: <laughs> so this actually, I can understand a little bit, having been in an airplane where you're like, okay trust the instruments, trust the instruments, trust the instruments, because this could be a hairy situation. But, you know, you learn to trust those instruments, and then all of a sudden, you're in a situation where you can't see anything. You're flying a really heavy, fast airplane that suddenly put itself in manual mode. You know, you start over-controlling the airplane because your instruments suddenly, you don't know if you can trust those at all. It is a scary situation. This is highly, highly scary.
2: Here's my problem with that, though, is... Correct me if I'm wrong, because mm-hmm. I might be wrong. There's an... um. A, a altitude sensor in the cockpit. You know the one I'm talking about that shows you the horizon, kind of?
1: Yes, there's the, you're talking about the artificial horizon.
2: Right. Would that have been infected by the pedo tubes? Nope. So they probably should have just... Looked at that? Look, well... Correct. To be fair, they didn't really know what was going on.
1: So... But going left and right probably was not the best idea. But here's the thing. Because you bring up that artificial horizon... Here's why they thought that was true, because the artificial, and we'll get way deeper into this in a minute, when we start talking about angle of attack, something we haven't talked about really before, but their artificial horizon was telling them something that wasn't necessarily what was actually happening, because they didn't know their speeds and their altitude. That thing, those were beginning to get lost on them. Their speed was really the primary thing they didn't understand, and they had lost all sense of. And... The artificial horizon, basically the whole time, told them they were in a relatively stable situation, comparatively.
2: But the speeds and things said otherwise.
1: The speeds and primarily the angle of attack, something that we'll get into in a minute... Was a big problem, by the way. ...was significantly different than they thought. And that's a big sign of disorientation. The pilot not flying said that the airplane was climbing, and he requested that the pilot flying descend the airplane... As soon as possible, and he continued to pull back on the stick, however.
0: Which you should never do when you've heard a stall warning.
1: Right, but at this point the stall warning wasn't on you. I yet, know, again. but still.
0: Either way, going up
1: probably wasn't the best idea. And the whole reason that he probably believed that was happening was disorientation as well. You start getting... your inner ear in a vertigo starts telling you one thing, and you're doing... so you're trying to do the opposite because you believe that that's what you need to do. And actually, your body is totally out of whack, and it's not telling you the right thing, especially when you can't see.
2: Which is why we talked about the artificial horizon. Yes. Because that can they should save have lives.
1: They should have trusted that.
2: Because if I, if I understand the artificial horizon correctly, it's kind of like a compass, but that only moves up and down-ish.
1: Essentially, it moves up and down, and it rolls left and right. Right. Yes. Yes.
2: What I mean by a compass is it, it rotating with the airplane. You know what I mean?
1: Yes. So it so, gives you it gives you degrees of pitch up and down and degrees of roll left and right.
2: And I'll try to find the thing I'm talking about and put it on the web. The artificial horizon and put it on the website. And because that's not doesn't take information from the pitot tube particularly to under to figure out where the plane is. It's kind of the best way to figure that's out. That's on a gyroscope, right?
1: Yes, it's yes, on a gyroscope.
2: That's what I'm talking about. Gyroscope. Thank that's, you.
1: Yes. We've and, talked about gyroscopes before. Yeah, it's on a gyroscope, and that's why that one works all the time.
2: So, and it's important that it works all the time, because yes. if it stops working, there's problem.
1: Yes. Um, it is also the one instrument that actually takes time to get running. It yes. takes about a minute.
2: And we talked about why that is the gyroscope has to set itself on the ground to make sure where it is anyway. Yep. So basically my point behind this entire thing is if they had just looked at the artificial horizon and trusted it, it probably would have been fine.
1: But again, their artificial horizon wasn't telling them what was actually happening because their artificial horizon told them they were in a relatively stable attitude. And that wasn't true. That's yeah. We'll get into that. At 210 and 36 seconds, the speed displayed on the left side began indicating again and it displayed 223 knots, so significantly lower than the 275 it had just before it dropped off. So that means that it had lost from 275 to 223 knots, which is still a significant drop and that would have put them in stall range. So therefore, they had actually reduced the throttle and pitched the nose back down to about five degrees, thinking that hopefully they could stabilize the airplane at that point. The airplane's pitch then increased progressively back to 10 degrees, nose up. From about 2.10 and 50 seconds, the captain was called back to the cockpit several times. At 2.10 and 51 seconds, the stall warning triggered again, but remained on this time. So now the stall warning is actually on. The thrust levers were then pushed all the way forward to take off or go around power, known as toga. So they
2: were increasing speed.
1: They were increasing speed. They had pushed the throttles all the way to full. And the pilot flying made nose-up inputs again. The airplane was at six degrees nose-up as the stall warning was triggered, and it continued to increase. The trim was then adjusted heavily nose-up within a minute and remained there at about 13 degrees. Which is very high. That is very high. The airplane, especially when they're flying pretty fast, though, the airplane reached its maximum altitude of 38,000 feet. Yes, they managed to get the airplane to 38,000 feet, but there's no way it could hold that, not in a cruise, not with the temperatures outside. Yeah,
0: as we mentioned.
1: And at that point, it was also 16 degrees nose up, which is pretty heavy nose up for an airliner. But because of their vertigo, if they didn't look down at that moment, they might not have even noticed because... Vertigo can really do really weird things in a disorienting situation where you're looking outside, especially when they're moving at slow speeds, they reach that max altitude and it feels like they're flying flat when they're going slow and at 16 degrees nose up.
2: So remind me, because I I remember listening to the cockpit voice recorder Mm -hmm. and they thought they were too fast, so they tried to slow down.
1: Sort of. Then they heard the stall warning. They knew they were a little too slow. He puts the throttles all the way forward, expecting that that would help them. But he
2: still has it up.
1: What what I think what he thought was happening was I think Vertico told him that the airplane was actually descending. (laughs) He felt like the airplane was heavily nosed down, and it actually wasn't. He was trying to pull the airplane up, 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 because he thought for sure, that the airplane was nosing over on him heavily. And it wasn't nosing over. And it actually, while I say that, it technically was nosing over because it was trying to correct for a stall speed. Right.
2: So, again, okay, two questions. Mm -hmm. First one. If they were near a stall speed... Mm-hmm. And the But the airplane, so we were talking about the pitot tubes aren't working right, right? Mm-hmm. They're iced over. If they're approaching stall speed, whether it be fast or slow, would the stick shaker activate correctly?
1: The stick shaker would.
2: So if the stall warning went off, but the stick shaker didn't, they should know that they're not going to be in a stall, right?
1: Now that said, this airplane instead buffets. What's a buffet? Aha, uh-huh. there's a fun term. <laughs> That's where, actually, the entire airframe shakes. Oh, God. that, would, <laughs> that <would scare laughs> It's a fun experience. Having, having done that in flight training, that is quite the thing to feel. Which
0: is why I'm kind of really surprised, actually, that the cabin crew weren't in their seats at this point.
1: There are, if there were any that weren't, because we know that at least some of them were.
0: No, because only three were recovered, initially. Right. Well, the other ones could have been. We don't know
2: if the other know. ones were. We don't. The only people who do are the people who found the airplane. If they found a body, but in they the sea. specifically
1: didn't mention it in the report. At least, not that right. I found. Anyway, so this starts to get a lot crazier from here. All of the airspeeds became live again, and the airspeeds displayed at that time were 185 knots, are extremely slow. At 2:11 and 37 seconds, the, the pilot monitoring said controls to the left and took over priority without announcing, and he continued to try to fly the airplane in counter to the pilot flying.
2: So he didn't just say my aircraft, he just said controls to the left.
1: Correct. So, yes. So that's where there was another crew resource management breakdown, and it shows, because at that point, now you have two pilots trying to fly the airplane with two different sticks doing two totally different things.
0: Which cancels each other. Which do
1: cancel each other out on the A330, by the way, and that's extremely dangerous. So, all of this to say, basically, they're, they're now fighting each other, and... You can't blame it entirely on that unexperienced one, as a matter of fact, you can't really blame it on him at all because the the other pilot didn't announce my controls
2: first of all, the least experience was flying. Mm-hmm. second of all, the person who tried to take over didn't say "My aircraft right and say he was taking over control so the both first officers were trying to fly the plane at the same time
1: right so now we'll say at two eleven and forty two seconds, the captain reentered the cockpit. And within seconds of that, all of the airspeed stopped indicating again, and the warnings stopped. After 54 seconds of sounding, by the way. Yikes. The altitude had decreased back down to 35,000 feet with, here we go, an angle of attack exceeding 40 degrees downward and a vertical speed of negative 10,000 feet per minute, meaning that they were more, they were just over three minutes from impact.
0: Which is basically falling.
1: They were falling straight down.
0: Because
2: they were stalled, right?
1: They were Yes, so they were moving forward, but because of the stall, even though the airplane was generally nose up, so here's where angle of attack really comes into play. Angle of attack isn't the actual attitude of the airplane. The attitude of the airplane may have been at this point, I think, five or six degrees up or something of that nature, as it fell through 35,000 feet. Actually, no, I can tell you. It was 15 degrees nose up. So the airplane was actually nose high but it was falling and it was falling forward. So the angle of attack has to do with the dire- the actual It's
0: the direction of
1: the actual craft. Yeah, the actual direction of travel of the airplane
0: versus the axis of the plane.
1: Right. So yeah, exactly. So that that straight axis of tail to nose versus the angle the airplane is actually traveling is your 40 degrees. So they were traveling in a 40 degree So
0: basically, because they weren't traveling in the direction of the horizon, the angle of attack was higher.
1: Yes. So that's where this disorientation piece really comes into play. He felt the airplane falling, and it was because he thought the nose was falling. The nose wasn't falling. The nose was up. The attitude indicator was correct. What they didn't have in the cockpit was an angle of attack indicator. As a matter of fact, most airplanes don't have an angle of attack indicator, because it's usually something that's either visually taken, or it is something you can feel. But, all of those things said, the airplane should have been in a pretty stable situation, be it that it was a cruise flight, so it was never expected to have been a problem, really, for this, these two crew members. Why should they need an angle of attack indicator when the airplane's supposed to be cruising at 35,000 feet, three hours into its flight? So,
2: and here's, again, the thing where I come up with, if he had just flown the airplane as it was, it would have been fine. But because they thought something was wrong, and they tried to fix it, and then the fixing it turned worse. Right. It caused it to become a giant
1: paperweight. And what we know is that the Airbus, the A330, we know that in previous incidents, it disconnects the autopilot and the autothrottle automatically when the pitot tubes have a problem. This was a known issue. And that is exactly what happened here. Now, this pilot might not have known that. The other ones might not have even known that either. But regardless, that's what happened. So they took over control of the airplane. And they were given control, but that means that at that point, that's because the airplane itself doesn't have a clue what altitude or speed it's at, and so there's no way that the autopilot could keep those two in place. They're relying on the pilot to do it for it. And the pilots also don't have any indications, so at that point, it's very difficult to fly the airplane. So
2: what happens after the captain gets back into the cockpit? Right.
1: The captain enters... Like I said, they were 15 degrees, pitched nose high, and engines were at 100% power. The airplane was then subjected to a roll oscillation, mainly to the right, so that means they were rolling between right and flat mainly, sometimes reaching up to a 40 degree bank to the right. Yikes. So the airplane was kind of in this continual state of going to the right.
0: Which is, I think, why the captain entered the cockpit. He's like, what are you doing?
1: Right, That, and he was called at the cockpit. Yeah, he
0: was called several times. And it was probably at this point where he's like, what is
2: happening? What are you doing?
1: Right. And all of these things, this is also why it was very difficult for them. We'll, we'll get into this. This is why they, it was very difficult for them to find the wreckage, is because the airplane wasn't on course. First of all, it had deviated 12 degrees to the left, and then it had been put into this right situation, where it actually fell on a falling right turn. The pilot flying then made a left and nose-up input that lasted for 30 seconds. He held it nose-up and to the left, which is a long time. At 1.12 and 2 seconds, the pilot flying said, I have no more displays, and the pilot monitoring said, We have no more valid indications, basically telling the captain, There's nothing to look at. Everything's gone. The thrust levers were then at idle, which I found interesting. And engines so were they at, pulled it back. Yeah, and the engines were at around 55% power, so they were basically trying everything to get this airplane back into into control. 15 seconds later, the pilot flying made a pitch down input, which led to a decreased angle of attack, finally, and the speeds began indicating, and the stall warning triggered again, since the speeds came back, and they were low. The pilot flying, at 2.13 and 32 seconds, the pilot flying said, we're going to arrive at, at level 100, which... I I don't wholly understand what he means. I'm guessing 100 in airspeed. 100 knots.
2: To me, it sounds like... uh, That, or he's... Altitude. If he's
1: talking about flight level 100, then he's talking uh, 10,000 feet.
2: Oh, they were way below 10,000 feet at that
1: point. Not necessarily. This actually would have been about right for 10,000 feet. About 15 seconds later, both pilots made simultaneous inputs on the side sticks, and the pilot flying said, Go ahead, your controls. While he's still controlling the airplane. That right seat first officer said... Go ahead, your controls. And he's still flying the airplane. At one point, the pilot monitoring asked, Do you understand what is happening? Basically saying, do you understand that the airplane is falling from the sky, stalling? He wants him to put that nose down, but he's not. So who's flying at this point, left or right? Both. Still? Yep. Great. But they continued to fight each other for the controls, with one pulling up and the other pushing down. Again, canceling everything. Yep. The angle of attack always remained above 35 degrees, so they were consistently just falling from the sky.
0: Which is insane.
1: It is. At 2.14 and 17 seconds, the Ground Proximity Warning System, or GPWS, sounded sync rate and pull-up warnings.
2: Which, by the way, at that point was probably accurate. Yes. Like, hey, uh, you, you're going real low, and you, you're making it so it's going to crash, you need but to pull up.
0: unfortunately... Pulling up is the exact opposite of what you want to right. do. Right,
2: but Nothing they like- the stall warning already sounded. Again, they didn't know the stall warning would be accurate. But the thing you do in a, especially in a in a slow stall, which we've uh, talked about before, is you put the nose down to gain speed so that you can get back up. Right. But if they thought that the nose was down, like the we talked about, mm-hmm. trying to pull it up uh, would just make it worse.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Which is all that the first officer was doing in the right seat.
1: And I don't think they realized how quickly they were actually approaching the ground, because they couldn't see it. Yeah. They didn't know. It's
0: just
2: middle of the night, dark. The only Mm -hmm. thing below you is ocean. There's no radar to tell you that you're losing. Like, there's nobody watching you on radar.
1: There was really nothing to see.
2: So they had no idea that they were so close.
1: Yep. The airplane then impacted the ocean in a belly flop attitude at a high rate of descent, in a stall. It was descending at negative 10,912 feet per minute, which is an unbelievable sink rate.
2: Again, it just turned into a a giant paperweight.
1: Yes. It it stopped flying. And it was only moving 107 knots forward in ground speed. So that's not much. A Cessna flies at that.
2: (laughs) It's going very slow. A (laughs) little
1: 172 will fly at that. That's about the cruise speed of a Cessna.
2: Very slow. I thought... Correct me if I'm wrong, I thought the captain at the last minute was like, you need to point the nose down,
0: and it was too late. I think so, too. I think he said something like that.
1: Yes, he did, as did the uh, the pilot monitoring, who was trying to be the pilot flying, without saying so. Both of them had indicated multiple times that he needed to push the nose down. And he did so at one point before pulling the nose back again.
2: So, if you're ever confused, I'll put a video of the cockpit voice recorder that I saw on the website. And it shows you just how confused this pilot was because he kept pulling
1: it up. Because he lost indications, he lost trust in the instruments in the airplane. And and when you're disoriented, that is an unbelievably scary situation to be in. The one thing I can say is, yeah, it was okay. So it was stupid. But at the same time, I kind of understand because... You're in a very heavy airplane, moving very fast, suddenly in a situation that's unbelievably disorienting, and you can't trust any of your instruments. Holy crap, talk about a, an overwhelmingly horrible situation to be in.
2: And on top of that, there wasn't any indication that the icing at the pitot tubes would cause this to happen.
1: Yeah, they knew so... that it would cause the airplane to disconnect the autopilot and autothrottle, but it wasn't believed to ever have been a major catastrophic issue. The industry was like, yeah, okay, we know that happens. We'll we'll think about a fix for this, but the reality is the airplane's still flyable, all the surfaces still work, engines still operate, so why should this really cause the airplane to crash?
2: Which, by the way, is true. The airplane was still flyable, all the control surfaces were fine, but it was so disorienting in the middle of the night with you not being able to see the horizon, and then not knowing what instruments or alarms were correct right. because of airspeed and things like that. Right. So I understand why it would be disorienting. However, if the plane was fine before the autopilot disengaged, right? that's my whole thing. I- Just fly it the way the autopilot was doing it. Eventually, it'll be able to turn back on.
1: Right. What we'll talk about more here in a bit is how the they didn't use the procedures that were given by the manufacturer or the company that could have helped this situation, and that I'm guessing that more than anything, the the pilot flying, in this case, the right-seat first officer, just didn't understand that because the airplane had disconnected, I think he felt like that meant the airplane was in a bad situation, which... To be fair, it wasn't in a great situation. The pitot tubes having frozen over, part of the problem was that the airplane had already lost speed. And it was already nose up. But he didn't quite understand that.
2: So the first five that are on here are findings. So these are the cumulative of the third and fourth reports that were taken after they found the airplane and after they were able to get all Mm -hmm. the information. So the first five were like, the crew was certified. The airplane was certified. It took off from Rio without any issue. The weather was just as it was supposed to be in the month of June, etc., etc. Okay. So I'm going to skip those because you don't need to hear those. um, And you get to hear my lovely voice try to read these. Okay. So to start the findings off, there were powerful cumulonimbus clusters on the route of Air France 447. Some of them could have been center of some notable turbulence. So there was some turbulence that could have been due to these clouds. An additional meteorological analysis showed the presence of strong condensation towards Air France 447's flight level, probably association, associated with convection phenomena.
1: And that's exactly what happened, we might add. And that that is what they don't wholly understand is because the convection currents were actually pushing those those clouds up higher than they normally yeah. would be, and normally they would be able to fly over them, but instead they had to fly through them. That's also why temperatures were high that's why they couldn't climb because the convection currents were causing the the high temperatures to also be up high,
2: yes. The precise composition of the cloud masses above 30,000 feet is little known, in particular with regard to the super cooled water slash ice crystal divide, especially with regard to the size of the ladder. So they didn't understand the icing and things above Mm 30,000 feet because of those convention currents. Correct. Several airplanes that were flying before Air France 447 at the same altitude, altitude, excuse me, altered their routes in order to avoid cloud masses so they altered their routes to go around the
1: storms which they attempted to sort of yep.
2: The crew had identified some returns on the weather radar and made a heading change of 12 degrees to the left of their route. We already talked about that. At the time of the autopilot disconnection, the captain was taking a rest, so he was not in the cockpit when the autopilot disconnected, Correct. which we discussed. The departure of the captain was done without leaving any specific instructions for crossing the ITCZ, which or- is
1: the basically the dead zone.
2: So he didn't leave any instructions on what to do after he left. Of course, I don't think he thought he would need to because they should just keep cruising.
1: Or the airplane was supposed to be in a smooth cruise flight.
2: There was an implicit designation of pilot as relief captain.
1: What? That one was, I think...
2: That was poorly translated.
1: Poorly translated, but essentially that...
2: The rest the, pilot went to where the, the captain The captain was, and
1: he was to take on the captain responsibilities during his time in the cockpit
2: there was an inconsistency between the speeds measured likely following the blockage of the pitot tubes by ice crystals so we talked about that that the is the pitot most tubes
1: icing prominent over prominent problem
2: the ap autopilot and then the a slash THR disconnected while the airplane was flying at the upper limit of a slightly turbulent cloud layer
1: so in other words Basically, they're just saying that while it was flying through that top layer of the cloud, through the turbulence, that was the moment that the autopilot and the autothrottle disconnected.
2: The airplane systems detected an inconsistency in the measured airspeeds. The flight control law was reconfigured to alternate to B.
1: Yeah, that one's kind of complicated, but they basically they reconfigured the airplane to set up for a different situation.
2: No failure message on the ECAM clearly indicates the detection by the system of an inconsistency in measured airspeed.
1: We're going to talk about this one for a second, because that's really poorly worded, but this is extremely important.
0: Basically, the computer on the plane didn't tell them.
1: It Okay, so they had a warning in the cockpit of a stall. They had basically the approach to stall warning happen, however... Because they also lost their airspeed tape, which is literally, it's it, it's a rolling tape that shows you the airspeeds, and normally it has a red indication to show you, from here down, you will stall.
0: Which we've talked about in episode four.
1: Yes. And in this case, because the airspeed wasn't working, they lost the visual cue that they were in a stall. They had a warning, but they didn't know if it was true or not. Because they didn't have an indication visually. So the e system normally tells you, if you get a warning in the cockpit, what's happening. What's wrong? Is the engine on fire? Is, you know, cabin pressure being lost? Those kinds of things. In this case, there was no visual warning in the e system for a stall.
0: And you, I think for anything, you get a visual and audible
1: yes. warning. Yes, and typically. And thing
0: one is confusing. And
1: the visual would normally be the speed tape in this airplane. But the speed tape wasn't working. So they didn't know what to believe. The pilots detected an anomaly
2: through the autopilot disconnection warning that surprised them. So they didn't realize, they knew something happened, but they didn't know what it was when the autopilot disconnected.
1: I mean, to be fair, you're at cruise altitude, 35,000 feet, cruising long at night in the dark. Nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, autopilot and autothrottle disconnect and give you a loud warning. All that just completely throws you off guard.
2: Although having identified and called out the loss of airspeed indication, neither of the two co-pilots called the unreliable IAS procedure.
1: Indicated airspeed procedure. So this is one of the procedures I was talking about. There is a procedure in the manual for loss of or unreliable indicated airspeed. So having lost that airspeed indication, there is a a procedure actually they should have followed to keep the airplane stable.
2: The flight directors did not disconnect.
1: I didn't touch on this much, but they brought this up a few times. This doesn't matter really much, and there's a few reasons why. Because the flight directors rely on that P2 tube data to give the airplane what it needs. The flight directors are literally, basically, the airplane's own pilot. They give you a crosshair, and they show you the speed you've selected as the autopilot. And it basically shows you, if you were to take manual control... How to keep following your route precisely. Exactly. Pitch and roll and yaw and all those things.
0: And I mentioned that it was disconnected in that ACARS message. So this is one of the things that investigators knew earlier in the investigation.
1: And specifically, once they got the recorder data, they knew that it didn't show a few times. It actually was in and out, just like the speed. The flight director was giving data sometimes because the pitot tube wasn't working.
2: The crossbars disappeared and then reappeared on several occasions, changing mode several times.
1: That's the flight director we're talking about.
2: The co-pilots had not undertaken any in-flight training at high altitude for the Vol Avac IAS Duatis. Oh my gosh, that's French. I don't know what that means.
1: Okay, yes. and this, <laughs> So, to sum this one up, here's what I have written for this one. Neither of the first officers had training on manually controlling the airplane during handling of speeds at that altitude. So basically at, they had had training for manually controlling the airplane, they'd had training for approach to stall and all these things, but all of them were at lower speeds, slower altitude you know, lower altitudes, all these things. And instead they were having to handle this airplane at high speed at cruising altitude, manually. And they had never been taught how to do that. Why that's important is because the airplane changes flight characteristics significantly at high speeds and high altitudes. And they, were, they didn't know how the airplane would handle. They were handling it with really heavy controls when the airplane can't do that.
0: So my question with that is, I know that in general, Americans focus a lot, American airlines in general, focus a lot more on hand flying the plane. Is that more of due to the fact that it was, they were working for Air France, that they weren't taught that?
1: Not necessarily. I can't say that this in specific wouldn't have actually been a problem here too, because it might have been, but it could be part, I mean, it it could be part of it. Part of it is learning when you start flying really big airplanes. I mean, (laughs) you know, you get really excited. Oh, I'm going to fly this big airplane and such, but you kind of don't, grasp what that means you have this unbelievable power with this airplane this airplane is fast and heavy and it flies high and it's it you know it's so easy to get behind what that airplane can do and lose yourself in it that you don't you know if you don't understand what that airplane is capable of and basically not understanding how that airplane behaves at high speeds and high altitudes can be really detrimental because when you have to fly that airplane manually at a high altitude you're going to be you know working that airplane against really really high forces because of the speeds and also the altitude is thin so it takes yes more input to control that airplane but also a turn is going to be very 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 long because of the speeds and those heavy inputs just you can't even do them at that altitude
2: the speed displayed on the left PFD was incorrect for 29 seconds. That of the speed on the ISIS for 54 seconds. And the speed displayed on the right PFD for 61 seconds at most.
1: So basically they're saying that they were giving the times that the... Speeds the,
2: were started to become incorrect.
1: The speeds that it that was indicating incorrectly, not that it wasn't indicating at all. That was the time that it it showed a very, very slow speed without being disconnected completely. So for that 29 seconds on the PFD, it showed 60 knots, and then suddenly it just disappeared. It didn't have any indication at all after those 29 seconds. So that that's the period of time that it was indicating incorrectly before it gave out.
2: In less than one minute after autopilot disconnection, the airplane exited its flight envelope following inappropriate pilot
1: inputs. And this is the one that they didn't know in the first report that I was talking about. They... They
2: didn't stay on their flight path.
1: And they thought they did. They thought they stayed within the envelope, too, within their 1,000-foot range or so. And, and they didn't they at all. They didn't.
2: The captain came back into the cockpit about 1 minute and 30 seconds after the autopilot disconnection, which they... I'm assuming this is a finding because it probably should have happened before then.
0: Well, it was a finding mostly because they didn't know it prior. Right. To they didn't know the who was
1: in the cockpit.
2: Throughout the flight, the movements of the flight control surfaces were consistent with the pilot inputs.
1: Just saying that it was following what the pilot was trying to do.
2: Up to the exit from the flight envelope, the airplane's movements were consistent with the position of the flight control surfaces. So it was following what it was doing, what the plane was doing, what the flight control surfaces told it to do. There was no regulatory CRM training for crew made up of two pilots in a situation with a relief captain. So the crew resource management, the two pilots that were first officers, there was nothing to say who was in charge, etc., etc. Which it would have been generally the person who took over from the captain, especially since that person was more experienced. But they didn't know that at the time. The approach to stall was characterized by the triggering of the warning, then the appearance of a buffet, which we talked about. Yep. In the absence of a display of the limit speeds on the speed tape on the PFD, which we talked about, the aural stall warning is not confirmed by a specific visual display, again, yeah. as we talked about. Yep. The stall warning sounded continuously for 54 seconds, so they were got that warning in the cockpit for a long time. Neither of the pilots made any reference to the stall warning or the buffet, So they had made no...
1: Yeah, so this is one of those things that I kind of... Nothing to say
2: that they understood what that meant.
1: This is one of those things that I kind of indirectly pointed out in the story, is that you never heard me say that they noticed the stall warning or said anything about it. They did some actions, but neither one of them called for a procedure or said, we're in a stall or any of those things. As a matter of fact, nobody did. Ever.
2: Yeah, it was just... A a siren blaring in the cockpit, basically. A short time after the triggering of the stall warning, the PF selected TO-GA thrust and made a nose-up input.
1: Yeah, so the pilot flying selected full throttle and And pulled back on the stick. And then
2: pointed the nose up. Neither of the pilots formally identified the stall situation, which we just talked about. The theoretical training undertaken by the co-pilots, as well as... Some documents, including the OSV note, associated with the buffet phenomenon with the approach to stall as well as to overspeed. On the Airbus A330, the buffet phenomenon is only encountered on the approach to a stall. Is it a stall either way or an underspeed stall?
1: It is. Because it does a, not specify. It It is generally an underspeed stall. Okay. It can happen in both, but buffeting is most typical with an underspeed stall.
2: Okay. So, the buffeting happened because it was under speed. The angle of attack is the parameter that allows the stall warning to be triggered. If the angle of attack values become invalid, the warning stops. So, the stall warning would have stopped if it got inconsistent things and didn't know what the plane was doing. Correct. But because the plane understood what was happening, it had a stall warning.
1: Right. So, that's the thing. So, the the angle of attack is really key there because the airplane knew what the angle of attack was the whole time. The pilots have no indication of what the angle of attack is, which it says that somewhere in here. But the the angle of attack doesn't indicate anywhere in the cockpit. The airplane knows what that is based on speed, altitude, and vertical speed. And the airplane didn't know what the speed was because it lost that piece of the puzzle. So then it didn't know what the angle of attack was. Therefore, it didn't know the airplane was in a stall. That's why the stall warning kept kicking in and out when the airspeed kept kicking in and out. Exactly. Exactly. By design,
2: when the measured speed values are lower than 60 knots, the measured angle of attack values are invalidated.
1: Yes, and the reason is because then it assumes the airplane is on the ground.
2: Yeah. <laughs> if you're under 60 knots,
0: I would assume so too. <laughs> yeah. that's It's an insane speed. Yes.
2: It is. Each time that the stall warning triggered, the angle of attack exceeded the value of its theoretical trigger threshold.
1: That's just basically saying that each time that the AOA was actually on, the warning, the stall warning was on.
2: Because they were stalling.
1: Yes, because it understood that the airplane was in a stall.
2: The airplane's angle of attack is not directly displayed to the pilots. So we already talked about that. There's no indicator to show them the
0: angle of attack. Which, quick question about that. Mm Mm-hmm. Does that show up on the heads-up display in the MAX?
1: It shows up on the heads-up display in a lot of airplanes, actually. Okay. But AOA still doesn't matter much, so it's usually a very tiny number.
0: I know, because I, I thought that was one of the reasons why there was such a fight to get heads-up displays in the MAX, is because you could see if it was erroneous data.
1: Yes, basically. AOAs are most common in fighter jets, because fighter jets do Beepew. such weird maneuvers they actually need an AOA to understand oh. what the airplane's doing.
2: Yes. The engines functioned normally and always responded to the crew's inputs. Yep. So A- the A- engines did what they were supposed to do. The engines were fine. The PNF called out imprecise flight control corrections. they not flying. They were, however, essential and sufficient for short-term management of the situation.
1: So this was an interesting one because they're saying that the the pilot monitoring was actually calling for... Um, flight path corrections that would have been outside the normal for the flight, but they would have saved the airplane. Yes. That's what they're saying. and that it's, it's poorly written, but that's what they're saying. They're saying they believe that the pilot monitoring's inputs that he wanted, which would have been a heavy nose down and a heavy corrections, might have been outside of normal cruise and passenger flight, but it, but would, it have, would have worked. It would have saved them in this situation, and it was essential.
2: Also... Only if the other person was not flying.
0: Also, if they would have said my cockpit
2: and actually took full control.
1: Right. Which is why it did not work. Correct.
0: Just watching the episode and watching the junior flight or junior first officer just continually hold the nose up. I was like, we know that not being in aviation to begin with. I could be sitting in a cockpit, feel a stick shaker, and know not to pull the nose up and to have an experienced first officer do right. something like that is just inconceivable.
1: It is. It's really strange. And at the same time, I always feel like there's once you get this vertigo disorientation, it is so, especially when your adrenaline's high, things are really strange. Everything's out of whack. You definitely, you want to go on instinct, which is the nose needs to go up. Cause that'll bring me up. Right. But Not it doesn't work. It doesn't work.
0: And that's drilled into you in flight training. Yeah. Again,
2: they were disoriented. The first officer that kept pulling it up, first of all, I, I, he, he just thought that that's what the thing was to do. They also didn't know that if both were doing a certain thing, it'd cancel out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, the fact is, is the experienced first officer, the one in the left seat, should have said, My aircraft. And taken over control, but he never did that. He said that he would controls to the left, but that doesn't mean he's taking control over the airplane. That's not the verbiage they use in aviation, and therefore, right issues happened.
1: This is why, and it, it, it's really, really big part of crew resource management these days. Is those key words? I have the controls, and the key response: your controls.
2: And there we are. Only a few more to go. Hang in there, guys. Okay. The last recorded values were a pitch attitude of 16.2 degrees nose up, roll of 5.3 degrees to the left, and vertical speed of negative 10,912 feet per minute.
1: This is amazing, actually. Can we talk about, for just a second, how in the first, in that second report, they specifically said, based on the evidence they had, the airplane was nose high, rolled left, High vertical speed downward. That is exactly what the airplane was doing. They knew that without having any of that data.
0: With very slim parts of the airplane left. Very impressive.
1: They got that information based on the little bit of ACARS data they had and the...
0: Limited wreckage
1: they had. The limited wreckage they had. Mostly it came from the wreckage compression.
0: Yay! So... that just proved what they did in the first investigation.
1: Yep. I bet they felt really good after that.
0: So kudos to reconstruction engineers, basically.
1: Yeah, that is unbelievable if you ask me. They, the fact that they even managed to estimate all three points, all three axes, basically, of that airplane without actually knowing it was crazy to me.
2: The pitot probes installed on F-GZCP met requirements that were stricter than the certification standards. We actually talked about that toward the beginning of the episode where we talked about that those pitot tubes were actually more advanced than the ones that were on other A330s and yet still had problems. Analysis of the events related to the loss of airspeed indications had led Airbus and Air France to replace c 1612 95AA pedotubes tubes by the C16195BA model. The first airplane had been modified on the 30th of May 2009.
1: It was modified the day before. That was the first pitot tube they replaced. Was the so day before say, the accident? When
0: they say they were in the midst of doing it, they were. It was beginning one, to do it
1: one day before the accident. I couldn't believe that when I read it. <laughs> when they said they were in the midst of replacing the peto tubes because they knew it was an issue, they had literally done the first one the day before the they made accident. It,
0: in the episode, they made it sound like yeah, we've been doing it the past few months.
1: No, no, it was the day before. They knew it happened They knew it was a problem, and they were going to replace them. And they started doing so the day. Before the accident.
2: Ba, ba, da, da. Okay. <laughs> EISA had analyzed pitot probe icing events. It had confirmed the severity of the failure and had decided not to make the probe change mandatory.
1: That's so crazy to me.
2: They didn't think it was that big of a deal. So they, they knew... said, you can replace them, but it's not that big of a deal.
1: They should have been able to predict that something like this, a disorientation, could happen, though, because the pedo tubes provide literally the most critical data to the, the pilots.
2: I'm sure, after and to this the autopilot. Happened. Yeah.
1: So obviously now it, the certification requirements are much higher, and it is mandatory to. It was became mandatory to replace those.
2: Yes, I would hope so. The flight was not transferred between the Brazilian and Senegalese. Thank you, Senegalese control centers. So they did not get transferred to the next center.
1: Right, which is, I I understand why because they flew through that dead zone, which is a pretty good amount of space actually. That they just didn't have anybody to talk to anyways. So transferring from one to the other really couldn't happen anyways.
2: So 822 and 909 in the morning. (laughs) The first emergency alert messages were sent by the Madrid and Brest Control Centers. So that's when the emergency tried to go find the, the plane. The crew was not able to use the ADS C and the CPDLC functions with DAKR.
1: Dakar. That's Dakar. That's actually Dakar.
2: Oce- Oceanic. If the connection had been established, the loss of altitude would have generated an alert on the control screen.
1: Okay. That one's really confusing. They're talking about the mode of the transponder. The mode of the transponder that transmits altitude speed position data to the radars of air traffic controllers. They were unable to get their transponder to transmit that data to a radar controller in the position they were at. They tried many times, actually, to the the Senegalese air traffic controller in Dakar, in Africa. That air traffic controller was never able to get their radar data. And if they had gotten the radar data, then that air traffic controller could have told them that their altitude was too low.
2: Which we talked about when you're on radar, especially in 2009,
1: it shows where you are altitude-wise. And it gives the air traffic controller an alert if an airplane is descending too quickly or has lost the given altitude.
2: Which, by the way, we talked about in my Miranda-sode. Hashtag check that out. Patreon. Shameless plug. Moving on. The first floating airplane parts were found five days after the accident, so we talked about that. They found those after, and actually, part of the tail was found, and I found a picture, and it will be on the website. Yep. The flight recorders were recovered 23 months after the accident, so almost two years after the accident, they were able to find the recorders because they found the plane, the hull of the plane, uh, at the bottom of the ocean, and that's the end of findings.
0: Okay. And we're back. Hi everybody! We took a quick pause because it wasn't a lot. Al- it was eleven o'clock at night. Quick pause? It, more like <laughs> close to a twenty-four hour pause. Oh, yeah,
1: we took like a twenty-two hour pause.
2: <laughs> so now for the uh, probable cause. Okay, I'm. I apologize. It's very long.
1: This is going to be instead
2: of it saying probable cause like in an NTSB report, it says causes causes of the accident. Didn't that happen with the Concord crash too? Probably. I'm sure. Thanks, PEA. Thanks, French people. We love you French people. I'm sorry. Okay.
1: (laughs) Wait a minute.
2: The obstruction of the pitot probes by ice crystals during cruise was a phenomenon that was known but misunderstood by the aviation community at the time of the accident. From an operational perspective, the total loss of airspeed information that resulted from this was a failure that was classified in the safety model. After initial reactions that depend upon basic airmanship, it was expected that it would be rapidly diagnosed by pilots and managed where necessary by precautionary measures on the pitch attitude and the thrust as indicated in the associated procedure, which they did not follow. The occurrence of the failure in the context of flight in cruise completely surprised the pilots of flight. Air France 447. The apparent difficulties with the airplane handling at high altitude in turbulence led to excessive handling inputs in roll and a sharp nose up input by the pilot flying. The destabilization that resulted from the climbing flight path and the evolution in the pitch attitude and vertical speed was added to the erroneous airspeed indications and ECAM messages which did not help with the diagnosis. The crew, progressively becoming destructured, likely never understood that it was faced with a simple loss of three sources of airspeed information. In the minute that followed the autopilot disconnection, the failure of the attempts to understand the situation and the destructuring of the crew cooperation fed on each other until the total loss of cognitive control of the situation. The underlying behavioral hypotheses in classifying the loss of airspeed information was major were not validated in the context of this accident. Confirmation of this classification thus supposes additional work on operational feedback that would enable improvements where required. In crew training, the ergonomics of information supplied to them and the design of procedures. That that was only half
0: of yeah. the entire everything. Okay. Yeah.
1: They're really 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 long-winded about this.
0: Remind me again why we decided to read this verbatim? beta <laughs> because, because we, we always, always do.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the airplane
2: went into a sustained stall signaled by the stall warning and strong buffet. Despite these persistent symptoms, the crew never understood that they were stalling and consequently never applied a recovery maneuver. The combination of ergonomics of the warning design, the conditions in which airplane pilots are trained and exposed to stalls during their professional training, and the process of recurrent training does not generate the expected behavior in any acceptable, reliable way. In its current form, recognizing the stall warning, even associated with Buffett, supposes that the crew accords a minimum le- level of legitimacy to it. This, then, supposes sufficient previous experience of stalls, a minimum of cognitive availability and understanding of the situation, knowledge of the airplane and its protection modes, and its flight physics. An examination of the current training for airline pilots does not, in general, provide convincing indications of the building and maintenance of the associated skills. More generally, the double failure of the planned procedural responses shows the limits of the current safety model. When crew action is expected, it is always supposed that they will be capable of initial control of the flight path and of a rigid diagnostics that will allow them to identify the correct entry in the dictionary of procedures. It really does say dictionary.
1: That is weird. (laughs) That caught me a little off guard.
2: Yeah. A crew can be faced with an unexpected situation leading to a momentary but profound loss of comprehension. If, in this case, the supposed capacity for initial mastery and the diagnosis is lost, the safety model is then in common failure mode. During this event, the initial inability to master the flight path also made it impossible to understand the situation and to access the planned solution. Thus, the accident resulted from the following succession of events. And there's a list, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Temporary inconsistency between the airspeed measurements, likely following the obstruction of the pitot probes by ice crystals that, in particular, caused the autopilot disconnection and the reconfiguration to alternate law. Inappropriate control inputs that destabilize the flight path, the lack of any link by the crew between the loss of indicated speeds to call out and the appropriate procedure, the late identification by the pilot not flying of the deviation from the flight path and the insufficient correction applied by the pilot flying, the crew not identifying the approach to stall, their lack of immediate response, and the exit from the flight envelope the crew's failure to diagnose the stall situation and consequently a lack of inputs that would have made it possible to recover from it. These events can be explained by a combination of the following factors. (laughs) And another list. (laughs) It's literally so simple. The pitot tubes iced over, the crew didn't know what they were doing, the pilot flying put in wrong inputs, and the pilot monitoring did not fixed those inputs and therefore caused the flight path to go all wacky and etc etc do i even need to read the last list okay you guys got it yeah you got it we're gonna move
1: on all of that was a very long-winded way to say basically everything we said before
2: yeah basically what i just summed up you're welcome i'm not i'm not reading anymore <laughs> so okay. moving on to safety recommendations there are several sections of these please hang in there i am so sorry in advance a lot of these are from the separate reports, by the way, so they'll be noted in whatever report that it came from. Recommendations from the interim report number three, and these are recommendations on operations. So, they recommended that the EASA review the content of check and training programs and make mandatory, in particular, the setting up of specific and regular exercises dedicated to manual aircraft handling of approach to stall and stall recovery, including at high altitude. Yeah, that. Okay, this has to do with the relief, Captain. They recommend that the EASA define... Additional criteria for access to the role of relief captain so as to ensure better task sharing in case of augmented crews and... That provisionally the DGAC defined additional criteria for access to the role of relief captain so as to ensure better task sharing in case of augmented crews.
1: basically, they want better definitions for CRM in this case, crew resource management for for the situation that they were in.
2: Like, who would have been in
1: charge to make the calls when the captain's and, not in the cockpit. Right. And how do you handle, okay, how do you handle that situation then who who takes on which responsibilities? And then you also have a relief captain. What is his responsibility to the airplane if needed?
2: These are recommendations relating to certification. They recommend that the EASA and the FAA evaluate the relevance of requiring the presence of an angle of attack indicator directly accessible to pilots on board airplanes, which we already talked about. Boo, boo, These are recommendations relating to flight recorders. Whoa. They recommend that the ICAO require that aircraft undertaking public transport flights with passengers be equipped with an image recorder that makes it possible to observe the whole of the instrument panel, and that at the same time, the ICAO establish very strict rules for the readout of such recordings in order to guarantee the confidentiality of the recordings.
1: Yes. so We've
2: talked about this before in a
0: previous episode. I think this
1: is really interesting, and I, I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest, I don't know, but... I wouldn't be surprised that in some very new modern airplanes that this does exist. Um, And it's simply saying that they would like basically a a time-lapse functionality where it would not necessarily be like a video of the cockpit, but but literally just images of the, the panel and what's happening at any given moment. And then the requirements for that would be, obviously, they would have to make them very confidential because in the event of an accident... You don't want those vi- images leaked, that's for sure.
2: That would be a little rough too. That would be
1: really a really little?
2: ugly. A little? A lot. Okay, maybe a lot.
1: That would be really <laughs> really ugly. Yes.
2: A little, a lot. Okay, moving on. They recommend that the EASA and the FAA make mandatory the recording if of the position of the flight director crossbars, of the parameters relating to the conduct of the flight displayed on the right side in addition to those displayed on the left side, and they recommend that the EASA and the FAA evaluate the relevance of making mandatory the recording of the air data and inertial parameters of all of the sources used by the systems.
1: So that goes with the fact that they didn't really know Everything about the flight director, they wanted to know. And the fact that the right-side PFD did not record, the, the speed was not recorded from the right-side PFD, and therefore they didn't know what the right-side PFD was actually displaying.
2: So these are recommendations related to transmission of flight data. They recommend that the EASA and the ICAO make mandatory as quickly as possible for airplanes making public transport flights with passengers over maritime or remote areas, triggering of data transmission to facilitate localization as soon as emergency situation is detected on board. And they recommend that the EASA and the ICAO study the possibility of making mandatory for airplanes making public transport flights with passengers over maritime or remote areas (laughs) the activation of the Emergency Locator Transmitter, or ELT, as soon as an emergency situation is detected on board.
1: I can get behind that. I understand what they're getting at. Basically, they want, in the event of an emergency, before the airplane ever even impacts,
0: That that a transmitter goes off. Yeah. So I drive for a food delivery service that I'm going to leave unnamed, but the app that is used to deliver, like to say, oh, go to this place to pick up, go to this place to drop off. It has a functionality where it will actually detect if you're in an accident so that both the service is alerted. And I think it also reaches out to emergency services. That's good. So something similar would automatically occur is what they're suggesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: Moving on. These are sections of new recommendations. So, these are SAR coordination plans over maritime and remote areas. They recommend that the ICAO ensure the implementation of SAR coordination plans or regional protocols covering all of the maritime or remote areas for which international coordination would be required in the application of SAR procedures, including in the South Atlantic area.
1: Search and rescue.
2: Yes, that SAR search and rescue. So these are recommendations training of the SAR operators. They recommend that the DGAC, in concert with the other services responsible, develop a homogenous framework for training and for approval of operators responsible for search and rescue activities in France. They also recommend that the ICAO define the framework for the training of SAR operators in its standards and recommended practices. Practices. Recommendations for the organization of the SAR in France. They recommend that the DGAC designate a point of contact at ICAO for the ARCC that has adequate means to accomplish his or her missions. So, glossing
0: over that a little bit, do you realize how many abbreviations you just said? So many.
1: Yeah. Thanks, so Aviation. Many. <laughs> this is very common in aviation. <laughs> If you really, really, really need all the definitions, if you really
2: want to go look, the reports are always linked on the website. Just go see the report. And there's and so much more. For there is usually
1: a glossary of terms right at the beginning, which there is in this yeah. report.
2: So. Please go look at that. Please go look <laughs> at that on your own. It's so much work for me to try to put a glossary of all these terms on the website. Okay, they recommend that the ICAO insur- ensure each member state has a national point of contact and makes his slash her contact information available. Recommendations for air traffic control. They recommend that the Brazilian and S- Sen- Senegalese.
1: Senegalese, yes.
2: Okay, authorities make mandatory the utilization by airplanes so equipped of ADS-C and CPDLC functions in the zones in question.
1: Those are modes of the transponder.
0: Okay.
2: And then they recommend that the ICAO request the involved states to accelerate the operational implementation of air traffic control and communication systems that allow a permanent and reliable link to be made between ground and airplane in all of the areas where HF remains the only means of communication between the ground and the airplanes.
0: High frequency.
2: Yes. And recommendations for the initial and recurrent training of pilots. They recommend that the EASA ensure the integration in type rating and recurrent training programs of exercises that take into account all of the reconfiguration laws the objective sought is to make its recognition and understanding easier for crews especially when dealing with the level of production available and the possible differences in handling characteristics including at the limits of the flight envelope they also recommend that more generally the easa ensure that type rating and recurrent training programs take into account the specificities of the aircraft for which they are designated.
1: It's kind of a really general sentence, I feel like.
2: Yeah, I feel like you should already be doing that. I wonder
0: what exactly prompted that.
2: That's like in general, just make sure your pilots understand that the type rating they're on, would be my guess as to what that is about.
1: I guess. I mean, that's why you get... Type-rated.
2: Exactly. So, you know, they're just making sure you know. Like They recommend that the EASA define recurrent training program requirements to make sure, through practical exercises, that the theoretical knowledge, particularly in flight mechanics, is well understood. So, if you get into a stall situation... Don't pull up. Well... At, at least in an underspeed stall. They recommend that the EASA review the requirements for initial, recurrent, and type rating training for pilots in order to develop and maintain a capacity to manage crew resources when faced with the surprise generated by unexpected situations.
0: We kind of expected this recommendation.
1: I mean, this one's kind of a given... It's kind of... it's It more has to do with, like, training to the point of habit, where if the airplane... Suddenly gives you a surprise that you react correctly and don't panic. And don't panic. That your your first thought is just to react in the correct way you were taught, and you don't panic.
0: For those of you who don't go through pilot training, would you say that like ninety percent of your training is how to get out of an emergency situation? Yeah,
1: probably about. I mean, you have just to know about what your to do. Int- yeah, learning about the controls and stuff and how the airplane behaves. I mean, yeah, that's a lot of it, but. Really, that's a lot of the initial stuff, and then kind of the rest of it is just how to like use that to keep you from dying.
0: For example, when you're getting your twin engine rating, a lot of your training is, what do you do if suddenly there's no power in one engine? Yep. So your instructor will just turn off an engine, and... Well,
1: he'll bring it to idle.
0: Turn it off, for layman's terms. Sure. They recommend that the EASA ensure that
2: operators reinforce crew resource management training to enable acquisition and maintenance of adequate behavioral automatic responses in unexpected and unusual situations with a highly charged emotional factor.
1: Again, trying not to panic. Just do what you were taught. Crew resource management
2: they recommend that the EASA defined criteria for selection and recurrent training among in, among instructors that would allow a high and standardized level of instruction to be reached. Instruct your instructors on instructing the other people.
0: <laughs> We've done that. We've taught Basically. teachers how to teach other people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Tis required.
2: And we're moving on to recommendations, improving fight simulators and exercises. There's so many
1: recommendations. There are.
2: Okay, so they recommend that the EASA modify the basis of the regulations in order to ensure better fidelity for simulators in reproducing realistic scenarios of abnormal situations. They also recommend that the EASA ensure the introduction into the training scenarios of the effects of surprise in order to train pilots to face these phenomena and to work in situations with a highly charged emotional factor. We, we basically just talked about
1: that. Yeah, basically. The, and they want, I guess what they're trying to say is that goes hand in hand with they want the the simulators to be a little more realistic in, and, and the training to be more realistic in these unusual situations like they found themselves in.
0: I feel like that's a recommendation you could put at the end of any report, though, because yes. you're not really going to not benefit from having realistic simulators and training.
1: Right, well, and a lot of these, too, it's their accidents where they didn't train for this specific incident. And to be fair, that's because most of them, it's like, we didn't know that could happen. Or, you know, it's a series of things that happened that caused it, and you don't train for those series of things. You kind of train for this, and then this, and then this. You don't train for all of this just happened to you, now what? It's kind of saying making the training more realistic in that regard. I think
2: next section of recommendations has to do with ergonomics. They recommend that the EASA require to a review of the re-display and reconnection logic of the flight directors after their disappearance, in particular to review the conditions in which an action by the crew would be necessary to re-engage them. So, how to re-engage the flight directors after they've been disengaged. They recommend that the EASA require a review of the functional or display logic of the flight director so that it disappears or presents appropriate orders when the stall warning is triggered. They also recommend that the EASA study the relevance of having a dedicated warning provided to the crew when specific monitoring is triggered in order to facilitate comprehension of the situation. So having a special monitor is what I understood from that. Then they also recommend the ASA to determine the conditions in which, on approach to stall, the presence of a dedicated visual indication combined with an aural warning should be mandatory. So along with the stall warning going off in the cockpit, there should be something visually to show them that they're in a stall.
1: Big time. I think that's probably the more important one out of most of those, because they didn't have the visual cue they normally would, And so they were like, I don't know, is the airplane actually stalling, or is it just saying it's stalling? They didn't believe it.
2: But they also had the buffeting, too.
1: Yes, the buffeting is a physical sign of of stalling.
2: So, I mean, part of that would be, yes, they should have a a thing to look at to say, uh, you're stalling, you need to do something. But also,
0: they need to recognize... The signs. The signs that they yeah. have. The physical yeah. signs.
2: Like, it's not just... The stall warning, I can kind of understand. They're like, well, the speed isn't correct, so maybe the stall warning's not correct. But, but the when the plane starts
0: buffeting... Yeah,
2: it's an actual response. The airplane can't is like, bruh, you need to do something. <laughs> yeah. So, exactly. yeah. I mean, th- that goes along with the training that they, rec- they recommended as well. So, the last uh, one in this section is they recommend the EASA require a review of the conditions for the functioning of the stall warning in flight when speed measurements are very low. So, how to recognize a stall when you don't have the recognitions you normally have. Okay, next section of recommendations. (laughs) Oh, Oh boy. Operational and technical feedback. They recommend that the EASA improve the feedback process by making mandatory the operational and human factors analysis of in-service events in order to improve procedures and the content of training programs. And specifically, that the DGAC take steps aimed at improving the relevance and the quality of incident reports written by flight crews and their distribution, in particular to manufacturers. Recommendations for the oversight of the operator. They recommend that. The DGAC reviewed the organization of its oversight so as to improve its cohesion and effectiveness. They spelt organization wrong.
0: (laughs) No, they spelled it the European way. Gross. Yeah, they probably did. They spelled it with an S instead of a Z. That is normal. Mm -hmm. Just like spelling color with a U. How dare they?
2: I'm just kidding. Just so everyone knows I'm kidding. I realize people don't spell everything the same. Collower.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry.
2: Don't worry, we're
0: dumb Americans. Let's move on. (laughs) Yeah, we're
1: moving on.
2: They recommend that the DGAC ensure the adequacy of the conditions of recruitment and training so that all of its inspectors have the skills required to exercise their functions. Make sure people know what they're doing. Yep, basically. basically what that says. And... This may be, it's the last one of the third report. So we may have more, but this is the last one of the third report. It's on the release of drift measuring buoys. They recommend that the ICAO amend Annex 12 on search and rescue operations so as to encourage contracting states to equip their search aircraft with buoys to measure drift and to drop them when these units are involved in the search for persons lost at sea.
1: Basically, they want to measure currents better.
0: Which makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does. If I I was okay with doing differential equations all day, it would actually be kind of cool to study currents, but then I think about doing differential equations all day, to which I say, no. No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I get that.
2: So that was actually the last recommendations.
1: Okay. And then there's this other section.
2: That's changes made following the accident.
1: They actually have one where they literally just list out things that have changed between the time of the accident and the final report. Never seen that before.
0: And it's actually really nice to have because if any of you were wondering, I wonder if that actually got implemented. Well?
1: Well, here's the things that did.
0: Well, and why this wouldn't happen again, right? Yeah. That's
2: part of what this podcast is all about. That's why we hear you. So, the first one is for Air France, and it's Airplane Maintenance and Equipment. The A330 and A340 pitot tubes, or probes, they call them probes in the report. Mm -hmm. The first one is acceleration in the replacement of the Thales AA probes by BA probes, initiated on the 27th of April, 2009, By June 11th, 2009, all the probes had been replaced. So all the probes on their entire fleet had been replaced by June.
1: Yeah, so they did that. Thank God for that. They did rush that.
2: They also, following an airworthiness directive issued by the EASA, replacement of the Thals by Greenwich probes in positions 1 and 3 from 4 to 7, August 2009.
1: So this is actually interesting. They actually changed the positions of the probes.
2: It is interesting.
1: And they did that mainly because they probably figured it would collect less icing and be less of a problem if they changed where it was.
0: Did that require any kind of like supplemental certification? I don't know. It doesn't say. So we don't know. If you know, let us know. Email us. If you are listening and happen to work for the EASA. Or Air France, because this was Air France. That yeah, did but... This. It gets certified by the EASA, right?
1: Yeah, it would. would, Yes, correct.
0: So, If you work for either or. How about that?
1: Even if you work for the FAA, you might know.
2: Yeah, maybe you do. Hey, we're open to anything. They also, Air France also did an internal decision. The replacement of the Thales BA probes by Greenwich probes in position two from 18th of January to the 8th of February, 2010. So they changed the other positions of the other probes. The next year. And then, for modifications to reference systems. The reinforcement of the role of co-pilots. So this is what they did with the CRM. Yep.
1: So they did already start working on CRM stuff.
2: Yes. So they did a modification of rules for relieving the captain in March of 2010. The relief co-pilot is designated by the captain. He sits on the left side and is the pilot not flying. So the pilot not flying is the person that took over whatever captain was doing. And then uh, deployment underway of a new decision-making method, the co-pilot speaks first before the final decision of the captain. So I
1: I think this is interesting because
2: optimization of decision-making, reinforcing the co-pilot's responsibilities.
1: Yes, so I think this is really interesting, actually. Their suggestion to help the crew resource management issue is suggesting that the co-pilot, or in this case the first officer, have the first word on the decision in order to basically make them speak up about their thoughts on this before the pilot has final say, before the captain has final say.
0: That is really interesting, and that definitely gives more weight to them and therefore better CRM.
1: That's the idea. They, they suggest that it, it cements their position in the cockpit.
0: You literally are required to participate to a higher degree.
1: Yes. yes. And I think that's very interesting. I think implementing that could be somewhat difficult, but I think there are times where that would definitely work.
2: And then documentation. They made changes to change over to manufacturer's documentation in English. The B777 division will be the first to be thus equipped in October 2012. Mm -hmm. So having their documentation be in English. Or have a translated version in
1: English. Yes. So because Air France documents didn't always have to be, they suggested basically that Air France documents all be in English for all the airplanes. That and way,
2: no matter if they have an emergency stop somewhere, that way English it's, is usually it's cons- the universal language.
1: Well, and at least it's consistent. Yes. across the board, it's always consistent. And so they made sure that their triple seven division to start, and then on to the rest. The triple seven division had all English documents.
2: Okay, and then these were changes made to crew training, flight simulator training specifically, additional unreliable airspeed sessions. Of summer 2009 in the A320, A330, and
1: A340. Making sure that they know what to do in the case that their speed is gone.
2: Right. Uh, Session booklet and briefing, technical reminders, human factors, and threat and error management, or TEM aspects.
1: Basically human factors, it sounds like.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Revision of the emergency maneuver on takeoff and in cruise phase. So what to do if there's an emergency at takeoff or Mm in cruise flight. High altitude flight and alternate law, which I'm assuming has to do with the stall warning and things like that. Uh,
1: alternate law mostly has to do with stabilizing the airplane manually.
2: Okay. So when you're in cruise flight, how do you keep it stable? Approach to stall with triggering of the stall warning. Yep. Landing without airspeed indication. So what do you do when there is no airspeed indication? Related briefings. All flight crew with weather radar and ice crystals. Alternate training and qualification program, primarily version, operational in the Airbus A320 since March 2012. So alternate training programs for the Airbus A320 doesn't say any other aircraft types. Yep. All right. And then changes with augmented crews and relief of captain.
1: If you take away anything from this part of the report, be it that it is that they think of everything in aviation eventually. They really do. There is nothing in aviation that isn't thought out. And so when you get on an airplane, you really take for granted every little piece of everything, every procedure and everything has been thought through. And that is true for this. That is what this part of the report is basically showing.
2: Design of an augmented crew self-study module and design of a captain relief study module. So basically it was just like having exercises to know when what to ha- what happens when the captain goes on relief changes regarding task sharing pilot flying slash pilot monitoring or pf slash pm effective on Airbus A380 since 2012 so instead of pilot not flying it was pilot monitoring they yep. just changed the abbreviations yeah
1: which we we already used quite a bit in this report actually when we were talking talk about pilot monitoring rather than pilot not flying which they changed that verbiage for a very specific reason and that be. It makes
0: it sound more active.
1: It makes it sound more active, which is actually a subconscious thing. You can talk to uh, a lot of psychologists about this, but it has to do with the fact that if you use the word not, which is a negative, then they.
2: Your mind just doesn't.
1: You're assumed then to be the person who doesn't have to do anything. Yeah. And that's not true. You no. have a just as important job, if not more so, and that is to monitor the rest of everything that the pilot flying cannot. Yes. As well as to monitor what they're doing, but also just make sure that the airplane is stable.
2: So, changes to feedback. They changed light operations safety audit to be implemented. So, having a safety audit implemented. Organization. Changes to organization. The creation of the innovation and transformation management. So... Next section is the Airbus. What Airbus changed? Fun fact, this is very short, thank God. Uh, The review of the unreliable speed indication procedure. So, Flight Operations, TALICS, or FOT, on September 9, 2009, recommending at the next recurrent training course, a session on the simulator at high altitude, in normal and alternate law, including manual airplane handling and carrying out the unreliable speed indication slash ADR check PROC procedure.
1: Yeah, so they they want they want basically at the next possible training event for those crews that they have to go through a high altitude loss of autopilot and speed.
2: Yes, we only have a few more left, friends, and then we're done. We're so close. Okay. <laughs> the next section is the things that the EASA changed. So, the first section of this is certification measures to improve aviation safety. So, number one the pedo tube obstruction. Review of the in service data available for the accident, which promoted increased reporting from operators, including events that occurred before and after June 2009, prompted in issuance of an AD or an air directive. Two thousand
1: nine. Airworthiness directive. Yes, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Two thousand nine
2: zero one nine five was a precautionary measure. It prohibits the Thales C one. 6195 AA probes, which we talked about earlier, though the probes that were getting changed in the process of getting changed from being installed on the Airbus A330 and A340 aircraft, and allows only the BA version of the probe in the three pedo positions. The maintenance interval for pedo cleaning was reduced. In parallel, the EASA monitored Airbus test activity in various icing facilities and in flight tests in order to gather data on pedo probe behavior in ice crystal environments. So, what happens to them when they're in ice crystals? Yep. In addition to the Airbus programs, a special condition is being raised on all new projects, imposing the latest specification material available for pedo probes. Yeah, that was a lot of things to say. They made sure they changed the the tubes to the BA version and then made sure to test a lot of stuff.
1: And made sure that 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 became the standard for certification from there forward. Right.
2: So the next one was on autopilot reconnection. An airworthiness directive issued by the EASA in December 2010 asked crews that found themselves in such a situation to make sure that to make sure not to reconnect the autopilot before the airspeeds return to values consistent with the flight for 30 seconds, due to a risk of a pitch runway that could co- constitute runaway. Runaway. Yes, due to a risk of pitch that could constitute an unsafe condition.
1: Yeah. So basically, the reason for that is because if they were to activate the autopilot, autopilot, what would happen is the airplane would actually pitch over really quickly. Because it's trying to gain airspeed. Because it thinks it's in a stall. Right.
2: So don't do that. Number three was the severity of the condition. So the EASA flight test pilots re-evaluated the effect of multiple probe blockages in an Airbus simulator. The previous major assessment was confirmed. So it was a major issue that they were being blocked.
1: Yeah, so it's much more severe than the industry thought.
2: And they were just testing that. Next section, rulemaking actions from the EASA to improve aviation safety. So the decision in... 2009, uh, dated on October 14th, updating the European Technical Specification, ETSO, C16 for peto and pedostatic static tubes. The revision upgrades the SAE standard with an enhanced test protocol. The agency is participating in the Euro- KWG89, which is working on the preparation of a new ETSO standard for pedotubes ETSO, in order to amend C16A. That
1: All of those weird words and and abbreviations. abbreviations and documents and such, saying that they upgraded their certification requirements for pedotubes.
2: That's what we already talked about, but just to make sure. They did that. Rulemaking Task 25.058, Large Airplane Certification Specifications in supercooled Large Drop Mixed Phase and Ice Crystal Icing Conditions, was launched in 2010.
1: Yeah. All of that to say they did the study where they found out what happens to airplanes at high-altitude icing events, where they fly through clouds and cloud layers at very, very high altitudes, like cruising altitudes, and... What that means for certifications of parts and pieces of the airplane that they didn't know before.
2: And last one for this section, and then we have one more section, and then we're done. Okay. So... The agency is contributing to international research projects aimed at improving knowledge of high-altitude icing conditions, in particular in profound confection areas, with the presence of high concentrations of ice crystals. This will be used to further improve the certification specifications in the future. A project was launched by the agency in 2011. It is referenced as EASA 2011 Op 28 high WIC ice water content of clouds at high altitude. The project will provide recommendations in the areas to be studied and on the preparation of flight tests to characterize the composition of cloud masses at high altitudes.
1: Even further studies.
2: Yes, just more studies. So last section is with the aviation industry actions that were changed after this accident. Manufacturers, operators, pilots, associations, and authorities formed a working group to draft an airplane upset recovery training aid guide to optimize both academic and practical training on upset recovery issues. Among the participants in this project were manufacturers Airbus, Boeing, Bombardier, Airlines, included American Airlines, Continental, British Airways, Lufthansa, Qantas, Uh, Kathy Pacific, Japan Airlines, and safety authorities included the FAA, which is the USA, the NTSB, which is also the USA, the CAA, which is the UK, and this manual is regularly reviewed and was updated in 2008.
1: There should be heavy training on that, how to handle an airplane when it's in an unfavorable situation, so the airplane is falling.
2: The FAA advisory circulator on the AC-120 stall. So I'm assuming this has to do with stalling. An advisory circular or AC contains information that the FAA considers of major interest to operators. An AC is not a binding regulatory text. So I'm assuming they just don't, they can't reinforce it with anything. An aviation
1: circular is not an airworthiness directive. Right. So they are suggestions. They say this would be a best course of action but they can't back it up like an airworthiness directive. An air it's like a service di- bulletin. Yeah, it is like a service bulletin. An airworthiness directive requires to be followed.
0: Yes. Because then the plane's not allowed to fly until, until it's whatever is with. directed is fulfilled. Yeah. So the
2: AC is a good practice guide that gives, that gives provides crews, that's bad English, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was translated, with the appropriate tools to respond to stall issues. The themes include methods and tools to prevent, recognize, and recover from a stall. The proposals are for advanced theoretical training, realistic exercises in the simulator based on specific scenarios, taking into account disengagement of automatic systems, continuous training at each career stage, initial hiring, new type rating, upgrade to captain, annual recurrent training, uh, reinforcement of application of SOPs and effective crew resource management by the crew, Practice in the startle factor. Use the upset recovery training aid by training centers and operators. And that, my friends, is the last of the changes.
1: Wow, well, we made Sweet it through. Sweet
2: Jesus. So much. I'm telling you, the French are so long-winded. Again, to this- our French listeners, we love you, but it's true. This was, was another
0: hour. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. There's
2: so much. You... Everything we've covered with Air France is so much information that can be so condensed. This
1: one took two days to record!
2: <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, we started late yesterday. We
1: did start late, but we still recorded for a long time we yesterday.
2: Did. So, and I hope you enjoyed this extra long episode.
0: <laughs> We're going to enjoy editing it in the next um, four
1: hours. I don't even know how long this episode's going to be. Yeah. Over two
2: hours.
0: I guarantee you. Miranda and I started editing the first half.
1: Which isn't the first half. It's the first quarter.
0: And we, between the two of us, already cut 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot.
2: Thanks for listening, guys. And continuing to listen. We keep um, increasing our...
0: Our listenership listenership is up, which means you guys are going back to work. So good for you. (laughs) And also thank
2: you for listening to us on your way to work and stuff. And And at work. work. Yeah. It, it makes us feel good that we were providing you with content.
0: Also, shout out to uh, Sonora, a.k.a. Mom number two, because she decided to be a patron.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: I think she just wanted to hear... She's like, I want to hear the post-episode, and also, <laughs> yes. And we were like, okay, I guess. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> but thanks. Much thanks. Again, so a little plug to Patreon. If you want extra content, so our after-the-episode conversations... The blooper reel, which this, oh. something from this episode will be in the blooper reel, uh, which I'll is really view. funny. And uh it Miranda-sodes and other content. If you want to check it out, you can check it out on the website or you can search for us on the Patreon website.
1: And we still haven't been able to give any of our patches away yet. We have these no cool one's patches.
2: gotten to the flight crew level yet, so...
0: If you're the first one, you get special dips. I'm just saying. You get- and the more patrons we have, the more benefits we can come up with and give out to you guys. So yeah, again, much appreciated
2: uh, for listening all the way through this episode. Very long episode. I personally, I very much enjoy this crash. I did not realize how much information there was. Uh, oh, this is a, a heavy lot of information. One. This is a
1: heavy one. <laughs> When, when, I, when we first looked into this one, we were like, oh, there's an episode. Oh, there might be more than one. Oh, there's multiple documentaries.
0: <laughs> we might do an update episode if we watch more documentaries. And we stuff. learn more. So enjoy the rest of your week
2: and remember. Stay Just safe. Just remember. <laughs> stay safe. Stay healthy. I was, was going to do, do the thing. And it didn't work. Okay. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Keep,
0: Keep your, your air speed, speed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen.
1: If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
2: This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy.
1: Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
0: And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora.
1: Catch
2: you next time.